All right, good evening. We're going to get started with our regularly scheduled meeting of the Planning Commission for Wednesday, May 24th, 2023. Madam Clerk, would you please call the roll? Commissioner Abbey? Here. Commissioner Busa? Here. Commissioner Farley? Here. Commissioner McCarty? Here. Commissioner Zucker? Here. Vice Chair Lagerquest is absent. Chair Comden? Here. Thank you. For some reason it feels odd, but we're going right into public communications. This is the time set aside during the committee meetings for members of the public to address the committee on planning related business other than regularly scheduled agenda items. Madam Clerk, do we have any speakers? We have no public speakers. Okay, very good. Let's go to the consent items, uh, which are the approval of the minutes for the meetings of April 12th and April 26th. Commissioners, do you have any changes, amendments? Would someone like to um, move that we approve the April 12th meeting? So move. Okay. Second? Second. Okay, very good. Uh, did, you, did you get those? Okay. Um, I have a first from Commissioner Abbey and a second by Commissioner Busa. Well done. Okay. So I think we do the, can we vote on the machine? Let's do this. This is the first time in many moons that we have used the electronic voting device, and there we are. So that's April 12th. Any changes, amendments to the April 26th meeting notes? Sorry, Chair Comden. Yes. The, the vote did not carry. It was three abstained and three voted yes. Just as a reminder, if you were not at the meeting, you can still vote on the item. And sorry about that. I got that wrong that it was April 12th. I, I, was at that meeting. And so That's right. We can let's do that again, shall we? Let's, let's revote then. Look for the blue box. There we are. And that motion carries. Thank you. And now on to April 26th. Would someone like to move for approval of those? Move to approve. Second. Commissioner Farley. Second. And that motion carries as well. Very good. Well done. Okay, let's move on to formal item. Project 22, 9-2, the 211 major design. This is a continuation of the last meeting. Staff, do you have a amended presentation you're going to give? Yes. Okay, please carry on. Thank you, Chair. My name is Gene Burse. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Gene Burse. I'm a senior planner in the Community Development Department and will be presenting on agenda item number two this evening. This item is a request for design review, coastal development permit, lot line adjustments, all for mixed-use development. This presentation will be somewhat abbreviated uh, given that this uh, project was presented at the last month's Planning Commission meeting. The project site consists of three parcels located at the northeast corner of Thompson Boulevard and Figueroa Street. 
surrounding uses include an office building to the north, restaurants to the south, an office building to the west, and a parking lot to the east. There are a variety of multi-story buildings uh, or, and or entitled projects near the project site. At the request of the Planning Commission uh, last month, uh, the Commission asked staff to provide the height of nearby projects that were entitled or have since been uh, constructed uh, of multi-story buildings near uh, the project site as well as throughout downtown. On this slide, you can see that there are multitude of buildings that have, there are multi-stories and we did provide the maximum heights. Uh, so last month's meeting, the commission asked for maximum heights of different buildings, stories, et cetera. Overall, building heights, uh, as shown on the screen, range from 50 feet on the low end to a maximum height of 75 feet on the high end. And the number of stories for these buildings uh, that the commission requested to know more information about is between two stories and seven stories. Uh, the proposed project is also shown in that middle column on the bottom graphic, just to provide some additional context. Also, would like to note that the commission did ask for additional information regarding the additional uh, density bonus exhibit as well as a view study analysis. Those graphics are available. However, uh, staff is going to allow the applicant team to present and elaborate on those. The DRC reviewed this project twice last year and provided feedback that pertained to height, massing, open space, and landscaping. Uh, the applicant team made modifications to the current plans, which you have, at, by addressing DRC feedback. This project consists of 27,000 square feet uh, of, a pro of a mixed use de development that is six stories in height. Uh, the proposed building will appear as five stories from the street from both Figueroa as well as Thompson. Uh, the ground level will have commercial at the base, and then there will be four levels of housing above. Structure parking is located in the rear of the site. Access to the site will be primarily from Figueroa Street via a private drive going to structure parking. There is a podium structure uh, at this particular location and with the multifamily units on the upper floors. These are, this is the podium level uh, of the project showing the multifamily units that are designed around a centralized courtyard at the podium level. The project is located in the part of downtown that's evolving in character due to a variety of nearby entitled projects and recently constructed projects. Uh, the proposed design responds to this evolving character through massing form function and building materials. And this project responds to that developing character through mass void relationships, form colors, and the use and the selection of the chosen exterior building materials such as stucco and masonry. This project will appear, uh, as I mentioned before, as two separate buildings, both from the Thompson Boulevard elevation as well as the Figueroa Street uh, elevation. Uh, this is accomplished through a variety of design maneuvers, uh, such as the use of exterior building materials, placement and circulation features uh, that provide a separation between the ground floor commercial space and residential lobby along Thompson Boulevard. The Thompson Boulevard elevation is broken up vertically and also exterior building materials uh, provide a horizontal articulation uh, through the use of stucco, brick, veneer, metal trim, and aluminum storefront. The project does pr propose street trees and landscaping along the site perimeter uh, and also in the podium courtyard area as well as within rooftop terraces. Usable open space accounts for approximately 30% of the total site area. Uh, this exceeds the DTSP's requirement at, in this location of 20%. Amenities in these spaces include a small pool, fitness area, lounge, and seating areas. The project proposes to install street trees along Thompson Boulevard with large canopies uh, consistent with what the DTSP uh, calls for. Palm trees along Figueroa are proposed to remain. Uh, this project also includes a curb extension 
at the corner consistent with the DTSP. This bulb out will enhance the design at that intersection. Uh, and also by doing so, it'll shorten the distance that pedestrians will have to travel to cross the street along both Thompson and Figueroa. Uh, this will help to improve pedestrian safety as well as slow down traffic in this area. Open space areas will be in the form of the centralized courtyard on the podium structure, outdoor terraces, and a rooftop terrace. Each of these areas will be provided with landscaping as well as amenities, such as outdoor seating, serving area, and workout spaces. These areas will provide adequate usable open space for both residents and visitors. In the previous uh, meeting, at last month's uh, Planning Commission meeting, uh, staff went over how the DTSP views projects and the rule and some of the regulations and recommendations that it provides for each project. Uh, generally speaking, there are four sets of development standards that each project uh, must uh, go through in the form of recommendations as well as requirements. And those four sets of standards applicable for this project are the urban standards, building types, frontage types, as well as the mixed type development in this instance. The applicant team has requested the use of concessions as a way to address some DTSP standards as shown on the screen. Uh, these standards deal with uh, maximum building height, the appearance of having multiple independent buildings, and ground floor height uh, for the shop front frontage type. Additional information uh, can be found in the staff report and the draft resolution that were both published. In addition to the concessions requested, the applicant is requesting waivers uh, from some DTSP standards as shown on the screen. These standards deal with location of open space, parking placement, massing of the building, and configuration of shop front openings. This project complies with 56 out of 63, or approximately 89% of required and recommended DTSP standards. This project proposes to develop consistent with state density uh, bonus law and re has requested concessions and waivers as such. Uh, for additional information, uh, staff would refer you to the staff report, uh, as well as we have uh, legal counsel on, uh, on hand to answer any questions regarding this particular state law. In summary, uh, it's staff's opinion that this project is consistent with the DTSP, uh, and it was also supported by the DRC. Uh, it's staff's opinion overall that the project is fully compliant when taking into consideration the concessions and, waiver and waivers that are requested. Given the aforementioned, staff recommend that the Planning Commission do two things this evening. The first, approve the major design review, coastal development permit, and lot line adjustments as conditioned. And second, determine that the project is categorically exempt from CEQA pursuant to Section 15.332 for infill development. And this concludes staff's presentation. Thank you, Gene. Commissioners, any questions for staff? And if so, please use your magic box to... Commissioner Busa. Thank you, Chair. Question for City Attorney. Uh, could you please uh, remind um, everyone today, what is the result of not allowing the concessions or waivers by the applicant this evening? If the project is denied, or excuse me, if the concessions or waivers are denied without one of the adequate bases for doing so, uh, it would expose the city to a potential lawsuit. Um, the likely result, result of the lawsuit, um, assuming the city could not meet its rather high burden, would be uh, that the city would be required to pay the attorney's fees and costs of the applicant, uh, and more likely than not, the court would order the city to uh, grant the concessions and waivers. Thank you. 
Commissioner Zucker, followed by Commissioner Abbey. Uh, I also have a question for the city attorney. Um, it's around, and I, maybe this will be addressed later. I'm, I'm curious about, uh, you know, if we received follow-up communication from the Coastal Commission, and, you know, in, in your view, um, you know, the, I know the issue was raised a lot in the, the prior hearing, which I, I wasn't able to be at, but, but watched around the where the kind of state density bonus falls versus the city's local coastal program and, and which might take precedent. Um, what's, what's your view on that? I'll largely defer to Ms. Zayer with the, the caveat that um, there is a relationship between the two laws, um, and I'll let Ms. Zayer speak to how, the, how staff handled that. Uh, two parts to your question, Commissioner Zucker. First part was, um, have there been further discussions with the Coastal Commission? Um, so uh, upon the, application, the applicant's resubmittal of the information of the view studies, uh, we did meet with the Coastal Commission staff and, and went through those, uh, which um, the Coastal Commission was satisfied with the exhibits and materials. Again, they, uh, they themselves believed that that was going to be the case, but wanted the visual representation and wanted to make sure they were included in the approval documents. Um, as well as um, outlined in the findings. Uh, did speak with them again today, and again, they had, as you saw, no public comment that they submitted and were satisfied with um, the, that submittal information. Um, as, as far as the Coastal Act and the Coastal Commission, as, as well as state density bonus, um, as you're aware, those are both two, two state entities. The, the Coastal Commission's objective mission... Um, uh, what they've been charged to do is protect coastal resources. Um, f for their uh, perspective, that includes coastal views of um, the coastline from public right-of-ways. It does uh, include coastal access, which looks like street, bike, pedestrian access to the beach. Um, so they do care about on-street parking. They care about removal of on-street parking and how that would affect um, people's ability to park and walk to the beach. They care about uh, things uh, such as charging for on-street parking. Again, their main objective is to make sure that the coastal access is maintained. Um, and so where those things are uh, reviewed are um, the city does have a local coastal program that uh, outlines those topics that are reviewed by them through our coastal development permit. So those objectives and out and uh, topics are covered through the findings of those coastal development permits. Within the coastal zone, the Coastal Commission does have an appealable jurisdiction area and a non-appealable. And the appealable jurisdiction, which is closest to the coast within the first thousand or so feet, they have the ability to appeal any of our actions to the Coastal Commission. Um, and they can uh, do that. Uh, this project actually falls outside of the appealable jurisdiction. So that's of how those things work. Commissioner Abbey. Um, Follow-up question to Commissioner Zucker's question. Um, again, the issue uh, of local coastal plan, where that, uh, how you weigh that against the density bonus law, and uh, Assistant City Attorney said that there are possible avenues where the LCP has priority over the DBL, what are, what findings or avenues would have to be found in order for that to be the case? 
uh, coastal resources, uh, finding that, that the, the project might impact coastal resources uh, would be one such. Um, I'm hesitant to give um, uh, sort of a hypothetical list, um, but broadly speaking, uh, we, it would need to be something that's, that falls squarely within the purview of the purpose of the Coastal Act, rather than something that maybe just happens to be an ancillary issue within, within the local coastal plan. Okay, thank you. Any other questions for staff? Okay, I do have one question. Uh, there was a public comment about Poli being a view corridor of some sort. Could someone address that, please? I, I believe the public comment was that it's a scenic um, view corridor, a scenic highway uh, or street. Um, that's not specified in the downtown specific plan. It is specified in the 2005 general plan uh, about numerous streets that are scenic right-of-ways or scenic corridors. Unfortunately, the 2005 general plan was not certified in the coastal zone, and so that is not directly applicable. Okay, very good. Any questions at this time for staff? Okay, seeing none, we are going to move to open the public meeting. Um, Madam Clerk, do we have speakers on this topic? Chair Compton, we do have 10 speakers. Okay, very good. 10 speakers, 30. Okay, we've, we've had a lot of public discussion on this, so I'm gonna ask that people limit their comments to two minutes, please, um, on the 10. Let's go. I, Chair Comden? Yes. Why would three minutes not be appropriate? That would only be 30 minutes. I'm sorry, if we could pause real quick. The applicant does have the ability for presentation first. Presentation first. Comment. All right, very good. Questions for Pardon me. Okay, let's bring the applicant up. And while they're doing that, I. The, per the Planning Commission protocols, the chair does have the ability to re reduce speaker time when there are 10 or more public speakers. That is in the purview of the chair. Planning Commissioners, city staff, and community members, my name is Josh Janowitz with the Daily Group, and I'm joined by the rest of our design team, and we're excited about this opportunity to present the 211 Thompson Project for the second time. Uh, we prepared an abbreviated uh, presentation as a result, uh, and we're uh, happy to present it to you this evening. We're going to focus our responses uh, to questions and comments received during the previous meeting, and of course our team is available to answer questions after the presentation. But first I'd like to turn things over to Nick Deitch with RM Design Group, and he's going to be followed by Todd Nelson from Rand Pastor Nelson, and they're both going to take us through the presentation. So thank you very much. Look forward to speaking with you. Good evening, Commissioners. Good to be here again to uh, share some information with you. We have, a, uh, I think, a relatively brief PowerPoint. It's going to repeat a little bit of what we shared last time because we have a couple of members that weren't present. Keep that brief. And then uh, we do have a short video to share with you at the end of that. Um, so if we could just move through the slides. So the project, I think we're all getting pretty familiar with it. Um, the uh, intention here is to create something that is uh, well-crafted and well-suited to this downtown location. Uh, I know this is a co difficult conversation, but I think of all the places in our community where we want to build 
a little more intensely. This is absolutely one of those places where we can and should do that. Um, we've worked uh, very hard to craft something that feels like it belongs here. And that's always our objective. Next slide, please. So, you know, the downtown uh, has the uh, context within the larger city. We made a decision many years ago, actually, for infill first, that we don't want to spread out. We don't want to move into our farmlands and our hillsides. That means we have to push that energy back inward, and this is one of those results. Uh, directing new development away from farms and hills, reusing developed land that's not serving its highest, best use, building needed housing and services in proximity to jobs and local transit. Next slide, please. Uh, so here's the site. Next slide. And uh, you can see the five-minute and the 10-minute walking radius from this location. So you can live here and actually choose to not own a car if you so desired. You could walk to pretty much everything you need on a daily basis living in this location. And that's true for most sites within the downtown context. And I think that's hard for us to imagine in our current mindset. But um, as we are evolving and realizing our impact on the world, I think it's gonna become more of a need and more of an opportunity. Uh, we are on a transit corridor. There's a lot of good reasons why we should be thinking that direction. Next slide, please. Um, the design creates variations in heights from two to four stories and a reduced portion of six stories. It responds to differing contexts of adjacent streets. Figueroa we see as a historic corridor, focusing on the mission. Thompson is a boulevard. Uh, was developed as sort of the Highway Highway 1 Motel Row uh, back in its day. Uh, so we've designed a building that behaves differently on those frontages. And of course, we provide a, a spectrum of affordability. And that's one of the things that's really exciting to me about projects like this. As I've, as I've shared before, uh, we have um, affordable units and we have market rate units, and they all get to share the amazing roof terrace. So someone who might work in a restaurant downtown, maybe served you lunch, could have a beer with you at the sunset. And I, I don't know of any place else where that could happen other than in these new projects. And I'm really excited about that. And I'm gonna, you can hear me say that a lot over the next several years. Next slide, please. Um, so design refinements through the process. We went through design review committee. Uh, we had some good feedback from them. We responded to that. Uh, next slide, please. So you can see that, just kind of flip through these, I guess. You can see that we've broken the building into distinct increments so that it doesn't feel like one large megastructure. Um, the intention is to have different responses to different streets and to break the thing down in a way that it, it does fit, that it feels like it belongs there. Next slide, please. Frontage of Thompson is contemporary in its design response. We have um, shop fronts and live work uh, dwellings on Thompson. Uh, set back behind door yards. That's the entrance to the lobby for the residential area. Next slide, please. And then on, as we turn onto uh, Figueroa Street, it's a different uh, flavor, different skin, a different character. And the street, the sidewalk gets much wider. We have a, from, from the face of the curb back to the face of the building is 20 feet of setback. And that's pretty cool. That's a, what we're calling the cafe culture that we want to try to fuel and feed uh, along Figueroa. Next slide, please. And there's a good picture of it right there. And you can see the mission right where it's always been, right where it always will be. And the corridor of the mission is completely preserved, much like the corridor is to City Hall. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. So just giving you a flavor of things. Next slide. So this is the Ventura Inn downtown. Uh, I, I like sharing this image because I think it tells a lot. And 
I hate to say it, but if the Ventura Inn went through the you know city process today, it probably would be opposed. Um, I think it's one of our icons. Next slide, please. So here's our proposal from Figueroa Street. Can you go back again and forward? I think that says a lot. To me, that says a lot. Next slide, please. The view impact studies that we're going to share are intended to show the general scale of the project in the context of the surrounding community. Um, we did not go out and survey precise points of elevation throughout the community that's beyond our ability to do, um, but we have been working on um, a, a um, digital model of the downtown that we're going to share with you uh, a little later as well. And I believe that what we're representing here in these images is, is a reasonable representation of the intention and the result of the project. Next slide, please. So this is looking from the mission steps down Figueroa. If, you, if we could zoom in, which we can't at the moment, you could see the blue ocean underneath that freeway overpass. Um, next slide. This is the project as proposed. Next slide. This is the project without the added height. Now, this is a little complicated by the fact that stories and, and, and height are not the same. They're not, you can have four stories that is 40, 40 feet tall, and you can have four stories that is 55 feet tall. So when we talk about stories, it gets a little wonky. Um, but we're representing what we understand to be what would be allowed by code in the, in the allowed and the, and the proposed. Next slide, please. So this is a view from the intersection of Palm Street and Poli Street. And you can see some you know, lovely blue ocean there. And there's the Crown Plaza on the uh, far left and the Palm Building, which is the Housing Authority's um, seven-story senior housing project. Next slide, please. There's our proposal. Next slide. There's the, you know, per, per code allowed. Next slide, please. This is something that most people are not aware of, apparently. Um, along Poli Street, the downtown specific plan provides for two stories of building stepping down the hill slope. But at Poli Street, you can have two stories of building. And of course, along most of Poli, we see pretty much that scale of building uh, within the downtown context. So uh, the point being that the intention of preserving view from Poli Street was, was not something that the downtown plan focused on. Uh, as you're driving you know, down that street at you know, theoretically 25 miles an hour, but most likely 40 miles an hour, the view of the ocean is not the thing that dominates. Next slide, please. So this is uh, on the far west side of the mission. You can see the clock tower in tower right in the middle uh, on top of the gate. And you can see, of course, those condominiums just to the far right that do exactly what I just described. Next slide, please. And there's the project. Next slide. And there's the reduced version. Next slide. This is from Grant Park. This is probably one of the most sacred views we have in our community. Next slide, please. There's the project. Next slide. Reduced. Next slide. This is from the middle of uh, the block between Palm Street and Oak Street. And just to the left is the parking deck that serves the office building that is two stories at the corner of uh, Poli and Oak Street. And you can see the Palm uh, Senior Housing right there in the middle of the slide. Next slide. There's the proposal. Next slide. There's the reduced version. Next slide. And there's a project that could be built on that sloping land. And I know that at least one, if not two, proposals have been contemplated there over the last decade. Not, uh, not yet to be submitted. Next slide, please. This is the view from City Hall. This is probably the 
for me, the most cherished of the public views in the downtown. And um, you can't see the project. It will not be visible from here at all. Next slide. Next slide. I'm going to ask Todd Nelson to come up. He's our land use advisor attorney, uh, and he's going to talk through the density bonus issue a little bit. And then I'm going to come back up and tour you through the downtown with a little video. Good evening, Commissioners. Todd Nelson of Rand Pastor Nelson here with the applicant team. Um, we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the base density exhibit and the recent changes in state law that guide the preparation of this exhibit, um, as there were some questions at last meeting, and I know that one commissioner was not here for the last meeting, so if you'll indulge us for a little bit. Um, Assembly Bill 2334 became effective at the beginning of this year in January and established a methodology for calculating base density in jurisdictions or areas of jurisdictions where there isn't a more traditional DU per acre or lot area per dwelling unit density requirement. Uh, base density is necessary for density bonus because the calculation of required affordable is um, calculated against a specific dwelling count. And if you only have an FAR, it can be difficult to map a path from allowable FAR or floor area ratio or height to a number of permitted units. So as um, adopted by, by the legislature, the AB 2334's methodology requires the development of a conceptual project, conceptual base density model that requires compliance with every applicable objective standard, as well as incorporation of comparable project features in the proposed project. And the purpose of this analysis is to demonstrate a site's reasonable development capacity. Um, and as shown on the next slide, the applicant has provided compliant base density studies to the city. This is the copy of the originally submitted base density study, which demonstrates compliance, and there's an entire larger sheet um, accompanying this, this graphic exhibit, identifying each and every DTSP development standard and a check mark indicating compliance. Um, this, pro this initially submitted uh, version, in compliance with the DTSP, uh, proposed, represent, sorry, reflected subterranean parking, which is an option to provide under the DTSP. It's not a mandate, but it is an option. And utilization of this approach resulted in a base density of 82 dwelling units, which is a reasonable approximation of what could be developed on the site in compliance with all applicable standards. With an 82-unit base density, a 50% density bonus would allow a development of up to 123 units of housing total through the provision of 13 units of very low income housing. The project as proposed only includes 94 units, but still maintains a 13 very low income affordable component. Um, at the prior meeting in April, this planning commission asked for a more apples to apples comparison showing because the project as proposed includes levels of structured at grade parking. As shown on the next slide, and in included in your packets tonight, this alternate analysis has been prepared, which includes above grade parking in compliance with the DTSP's parking standards and continues to demonstrate compliance with every DTSP standard. And as with the original proposal, um, it continues to incorporate comparable project details such as ground level commercial, um, ground level lobby spaces, provided setbacks, and open space and amenity areas. This alternate study reflects a base density of 67 units, 
which again, through application of a 50% density bonus as, as allowed under state law, would allow up to 101 units to be provided at this site. Again, the project has remained as originally proposed, 94 units with a 13 very low income affordable component. I'm just gonna interject real quick. We are past the 10 minute mark for the applicant. The oh, chair I does have the ability to grant additional time. Do you think that you can wrap this up and show your video in the next five minutes? If I wrap up in 20 seconds, we'll have enough time for the video. Okay. So let's proceed um, with that. So five additional minutes. The, in conclusion, the, the final slide shows the proposed density model. Um, the deviations from the, from the downtown specific plan have been clearly identified and are permitted through the use of incentives and waivers under density bonus. There have been several public comments objecting to the inclusion of amenity areas, um, saying that with the stripping out those amenity areas, the project size could be reduced. However, the provision of the project's amenity areas and the associated incentive and waiver requests are fully compliant with state law, state density bonus law, and current California case law that authorize the provision of amenity areas because they directly support the provision of affordable housing. And with that, I'll close. We are available for questions, and I'm gonna turn it back over to Nick so you can present the video. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, if we could start the video up and we'll just take you through a quick uh, fly through. Um, we've been working on a digital model of downtown for you know about a little more than a decade actually. We began, it began as a collaboration between us and the GIS staff in, uh, in City Hall. Um, but this, I think, the, the great thing about this, it really amazes me frankly, is that we can share and experience this thing in its context with you and um, you know, really get a feel for how it's gonna sit on the ground and how it's going to feel as we move around it from different vantage points. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I get real geeky about this stuff. Um, now this is based on Google Earth terrain, which is not highly precise, but I believe is a reasonable facsimile and representative of the character of the, of the setting. So here we are on Thompson, we're gonna zip down Go along the street front. One of the breaks in the massing, which was inspired by a fire escape, old time fire escape. Okay, corner cafe. The mission again visible down Figueroa. We're gonna take a quick spin up and look at the roof terraces. Various places for people to hang, different activities, quiet, boisterous, wonderful views that everyone in the building can share. You can see the fairgrounds in the distance. The downstairs cafe at the corner. Intention is to provide a lot of connectivity at street level. We're gonna move down uh, east on Thompson and take a look at the project from other points of downtown. To the right there is Encanto del Mar, which is an affordable family housing project. Uh, 
You can see the Palms, the senior housing there on Palm Street. We're going to pull back across Oak Street to California Street. There's the Eurostanley Gardener, the Lure building, the Ventura Inn. Where's the project? It's in there. City Hall. There's another project in the foreground that we designed a couple of years ago that's in pending construction. There's the Mission Tower, looking down Figueroa. There's the Clock Tower Inn. Mission Plaza, which I would love to see turned into an actual real town square. There's the Cora and the Wave here in the foreground. Now we're gonna come down Thompson. You can see the context here of the Wave, the Cora project. The rough massing of a project here on our left that's been entitled and not yet started construction. And then approaching, there's Tony's Pizza on the right. And here we are. So I hope that's helpful just to see the context. It's, to me, it's kind of astounding that we can do that. Uh, and we're available to answer questions. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Uh, Commissioner Abbey. I had a question for Nick. Yes, sir. Um, you had mentioned, you had shown on one of your slides the building from Poli, and you you mentioned one was as proposed and one was as it conforms to the downtown specific plan. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, so this project is 69 feet at its maximum height? I, I'm not going to quote heights. I, I don't keep that stuff in my head. Yeah, I'd like to know, though, what is the... What is the height of that conforms? That's, that can come from staff or from our exhibits, but I do not have that information in my head, Mark. Okay. I would think you would, but thank nope. you. Well, let's ask staff. Can you answer the question for Commissioner Abbey? Please. The maximum height of the proposed project is 69 feet to the top of parapet. Okay, and what is the maximum height that would be conforming to the downtown specific plan without the density bonus? So the downtown specific plan isn't based on heights, it's based on stories. Okay, so what would you ex what would the height range be given the number of stories? So with this project, they could have give me just a moment here. So the base zoning district uh, allows three stories and a fourth story at 25% of the building footprint. However, given the proposed development, it's a mixed type development and it's also a commercial block building type. Uh, the maximum height would be actually limited to three stories with the fourth story at 15% of the footprint of the ground floor. Okay, so if you say the 15% is fourth story what would the what would be the range of the height of that so as director zayer was speaking of the downtown specific plan talks about height in terms of stories generally speaking uh, you would have for mixed-use development a ground floor commercial and the applicant can correct me on this a ground floor commercial can range between 14 feet up to 18 feet in height for ground floor commercial and then subsequent 
uh, stories or levels could be in a range of 10 to 12 feet in height. Uh, so you would have the three stories, theoretically, let's say a maximum ground floor height of 18 feet, and then a second story at, let's say, 10 to 12 feet, a third story at 10 to 12 feet, and then a fourth story at 15% of area of the building footprint, which that fourth story would still be somewhere between 10 and 12 feet. So 18 and 12 is 30, 12 is 42, 12 is 54. Okay, thank you. Commissioner Riccardi. I don't have a, a question of the applicant right now, but just, just a comment. Um, it's uh, apparent to me a tremendous amount of work has gone into the design and the presentation, um, and I'd like to acknowledge that. It's, you've, uh, you've done a, uh, a great job with the design, the presentation, and in particular the, the 3D video uh, for the Planning Commission and the city in general. I think a, a tool such as that 3D rendering would be a fantastic tool for this commission and the city council to evaluate future projects. So uh, something, something to keep in mind. So uh, I want to acknowledge and thank the, uh, the applicant team for a, 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 a good design, a lot of well-thought-out uh, design, and also good presentation. Thank you. I agree. Um, Question for the uh, applicant. Uh, you were talking about a bulb out. I see a bulb out on Figueroa, but I don't know where the parking spaces on Thompson are going to come from. Could you address that? Right now it's uh, four, two lanes on each side. Yes. We actually provide 10 feet of additional setback along Thompson. Um, combined with the bulb out, if you look at our detailed plans, it actually wraps further around on the Thompson, so it creates a, essentially a little alcove along the Thompson frontage. So you go from a situation now where you have, you can see it there, you have essentially red, you know, red curve along the whole frontage to this condition here where you have a combination of par you know, parallel parking and landscaping along Thompson. And I believe we did the calculation, it's in the staff report, There's a, we actually end up gaining six additional park, street parking spaces with this project yeah. prepared, uh, compared to existing. And reiterate for us the percentage of the sixth story. Um, I think it's around, Gene, correct me if I'm wrong, it's somewhere around 0.3. One third believe, of the footprint? I believe, Gene, don't quote me on that, but Gene can confirm. Could we see, could we see a visual of what that looks like from above? I, I kind of want to see where that's. The percentage of the uh, sixth floor, it's approximately 31% of the building footprint. And what was your other question? I, I, uh, is it the gray area there? No, Gene, do you so have the floor plans in the presentation? Or the staff? Give us just one moment. Yeah, that's certainly more than 31%. We don't have the floor plans uh, in this presentation. However, the commission If you does. put, actually, go to the density model right there. I can give a brief overview just to kind of orient everyone. Yeah. Not that one, the proposed. Do we have the project model? Uh, there we go, right there. So you can see Commissioner Comden, we, there's the third floor and it's, it includes a large portion of it is open space shown in green, right? So that whole southwest and western side of the building is open space. Then you have a depressed area on the other side of the courtyard 
so there actually isn't a, a fifth store or fifth floor on any of that portion. So you're essentially left with the far east component of the building and a setback portion uh, along the Thompson frontage, and then it steps down significantly and wraps around uh, and all the way up Figueroa. Sorry, that's, that's the open space area. So no development on that fifth floor in the green area shown in the exhibit. What's your anticipation on the number of uh, stories you have to go up to get a view over the freeway? It's around, it hasn't been verified specifically, but we, we flew some drone shots and we think it's around the, the uh, at the third floor above the parking garages when you start to get above it. All right. All right, very good. Any other questions for the applicant? Okay. Thank you Thank very you. much. Appreciate it. All right. With that, we're going to open the public meeting. Madam Clerk, do we still have 10? Chair Condon, we have 15 speakers. Let's go two minutes. Okay. Thanks. Commissioner McCarty. Um, given that you granted the applicant extra time, would you entertain a discussion regarding uh, maintaining the public speaker comments to three minutes per person? I would, however, I don't want to go, deja vu isn't going to be helpful here. We had, this is a continuation of a meeting we had last, last month. Uh, I would hope that uh, the public comments are going to be, I, uh, you have had credit and you've had public speaking. So I, what we're looking for is, this is amended comments. Um, you know, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to go with the two minutes. Thank you. Before Our, we do, if we could just reiterate, please maintain public decorum. Uh, providing middle finger comments in the audience, let's please try to refrain from um, booing, jeering, uh, providing feedback to the planning commission that may be construed as disrespectful, and to other members of the public who are speaking on the item. Thank you. Much appreciated. Our first public speaker is Carol Spector. Um, she does have a PowerPoint, and I would like to point out that since there is a PowerPoint that is being displayed, that the timer will not show up. So if you could bring up Ms. Spector's, and she will have six minutes. She's had her time, uh, time was ceded to her from Pete Freeman and Connie Lanthrop. Very good. Good evening. I, um, first of all, I want to say real quickly, we didn't see the new letter from the Coastal Commission, so I, it's going to be hard to address that. I know Commissioner Zucker asked a couple of questions. To the 2005 specific plan, which mes uh, mentions the designated scenic highway, was referenced Monday and used as part of the vote and discussion for uh, KB Homes. Three, uh, I love that Commissioner McCarty liked the idea of the 3D thing. We'd love to see story polls. I think that would also um, make a difference. And uh, the, sorry, the speed limit on pole A is 25, not 40. Um, in order to improve, uh, approve this project, you have to make several legally valid findings. I'm going to talk about the lo local coastal program, finding number six, requiring the project to be compatible with established physical scale and character of the area. If you can't make this finding, it cannot be approved. 
Um, as you read in your packet, um, the density bonus law from a December 5th letter says it does not supersede the local coastal program. I know Commissioner Zucker, you asked about that, but I'm going by the letter that I read. Um, uh, an excerpt from this from uh, December 5th, this is from them. The DBL uh, explicitly indicates it shall not be implemented in a way that conflicts with a coastal act. By extension, this is their quote, the DBL does not override the local coastal plan. From a letter from them. In order to approve a project that deviates, you have to prove two things. One, the approved project encourages housing opportunities for persons of low and moderate income, which this does. I mean, that's impressive. But it also says with the least amount of Coastal Act and LCP deviation. We argue the project does not need to be six stories high to accommodate the low income housing. And part of their ruling was also there will be no significant adverse coastal resource impact due to the approved project. In local, in uh, coastal development finding number six, it says the development must be compatible with the established physical scale and character of the area per our uh, Santa Buena Ventura Municipal Code. The, in a letter on the 5th, they stated, the staff report for the December 7, 2022 DRC meeting indicates the DRC provided feedback to the applicant on the building design including the building height is higher than what is appropriate for this location in downtown, and that a, sorry, a maximum height of three stories would be more in line with the existing context. My first slide, thank you, um, is showing how massive this building is in comparison to the surrounding area. This is the developer's slide. Just look at the building they are comparing it to. The Palms building was built in the 60s before the DTSP was established. Look at the disruption between the two. Look how much more space 211 will take. Others have mentioned or will mention the cumulative effect of these tall projects, which the Coastal Commission says must be accounted for. Can I show you my second slide real fast? Thank you. And this is the view from the freeway. Imagine a six-story building where that green is, the hills, the view of the hills will disappear. Um, there's also a potential five-story park plaza project that is also going to disrupt the view. All right, so that's the physical scale. Now the character of the area. It's interesting to note that this project and proposed park plaza project, while attractive in the right setting, are supported by the same architectural firm that seems to want to over-urbanize over and improve, impose their towering modern mark on this charming historic area. Um, in the supplemental packet um, in April, they listed eight points of interest on Figueroa between the Mission and Thompson. I'm not going to list them all, but Figueroa Street probably has the highest concentration of historical sites in the city. Except for the Mission, these historic buildings are one and two stories. More modern buildings since the Victorian across from 211 is only about 40 feet high and the Court of Appeals is 50 feet high. This is going to be 70 plus the rooftop deck. As previously noted in my first slide, the Palm Senior Living is the same height as 211, but is a much smaller footprint. 211 would be the most massive building in the area. You already read Father Tom's perspective of this. He is very concerned about this area and what is going on. So with these points in mind, it is up to you to determine whether 211 Thompson is, from the uh, 
Coastal Commission compatible with the established physical scale and character of the area. If you decide 211 Thompson is too massive and would serve to understate the historical significance of this area, finding six cannot be made and you must deny approval of this project because as from the local commission, they said density bonus law does not override the Ventura LCP. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Spector. Our next speaker is Eileen Shaw, who also has a PowerPoint and has had time ceded to her by Amy Sherry and David Landrip. So she's going six minutes as well. Very good. Good evening. Good evening, planning commissioners and staff. To approve this project, you must make required and legally valid findings. I will discuss one of these, Local Coastal Program Finding 5. If you cannot make this finding, the project cannot be approved. Required Finding 5 states, the development does not significantly obstruct public views of the coastline, views from any public road, or from a public recreation area as per SBMC section 24.515.070. I would like to show you several photos that will show it does significantly obstruct public scenic views. This is the first slide. This photo is from the April view study provided by the applicant. It shows a rendering of the building from Poli Street and Palm Street. On the left is the seven-story Palms building, which is all affordable housing. It was built 60 years ago, prior to the passage of the Coastal Act, which was passed in 1976. The light yellow line is the top of a four-story building. The gold line indicates the height of a 54-foot tall building, which conforms with the downtown specific plan. And I think Mr. Bursick gave you the math on that. 18, 12, 12, 12, 54. The white line indicates the sixth story, which is 31% of the footprint. However, as you can see from Poli, it reads as almost 100% massing due to the position of the units in the back to maximize the views of the coastline. So only to a bird flying above the building will it appear to be 31% of the footprint. But to the rest of us, the entire building will appear to be more than 70 feet tall and blocking our views. One must remember that the height on the sixth floor does not include the amenities on the rooftop deck. Next slide, please. This is a photo taken at the corner of Poli at Palm. It's important to note that the 211 building is two and a half times the width of the Palms building, which is 71 feet at its widest. So imagine almost three of those tall buildings side by side to picture the width of 211. It's massive, and it completely blocks everything behind it, including the coastline. Next slide, please. I wish we could walk out the door and turn right on Poli Street to imagine how the coastal view would change. Our beautiful coastline includes the view of the Santa Barbara Channel, pictured here, and Anacapa Island. Anacapa Island is located in Ventura County, 
just like us. You can't see Anacapa Island from Santa Paula or Thousand Oaks, though. You see it from our city, Ventura, and you can see it from Poli Street, a designated scenic roadway. Our municipal code does not state it only protects the view of where the ocean meets the sand. It's broader than that to cover views of the coastline, like views of Anacapa from any public road or from a public recreation area. Next slide, please. Let's turn around on Pole and walk back towards Oak Street and picture another half a block of our view being erased by the 211 project. Now picture it at 54 foot tall conforming height, which would preserve the views from this scenic public road, Poli, as finding number five from the coastal development permit legally requires. I believe there is a compromise here where you can build luxury housing, add the required number of affordable units, and not obstruct public views of the coastline. Now that you've clearly seen that the non-conforming floors five and six of this project will obstruct public views of the coastline, including views of Anacapa Island from a public road, it is for you to decide if this obstruction is significant. Per the Coastal Commission's April 26th letter to the city, this decision should be made considering the potential cumulative visual resource impacts of the subject project in addition to other future projects in the same area with and without density bonus concessions for additional height. The pictures I have provided show views of Anacapa Island would be partially to nearly fully obstructed for more than a one block span of Poli centered on Palm Street. Most people would agree that our best ocean views are when the Channel Islands are clearly visible. Based on this, I would argue that any obstruction of one of them is significant. Considering the Coastal Commission requirement that the view impact of this project should be considered cumulatively with other projects, the obstruction is clear and there will be significant adverse coastal resource impacts due to an approval of the project. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Christy Weir, followed by Stephanie Caldwell. Hello. Um, the downtown specific plan, page 2-9, does talk about public views, um, protecting, preserving, and enhancing all public views of the ocean, not just Poli, but all of them. So it's right in there. Um, also, the, the Ventura Inn um, has a 20-foot sidewalk, which is what makes the height work visually and practically speaking. Um, I think, I'm not sure what the sidewalk width is on Thompson, but I don't think it's anywhere near 20 feet on this one. You gotta have a really wide sidewalk when you have a tall building. Um, so the height, the 42-foot height mostly that's allowed in the downtown specific plan, this is way taller. 
um, the extra height through a density bonus is the biggest uh, negative impact to this proposal, and findings are required to grant density bonuses, and you must find that there are no health and safety impacts to improve this. Because of the extra density, the traffic will be increased. I was in that area during the Thomas fire and during the January flooding and during this last weekend with the uh, fairgrounds impact. Um, any extra cars and safety risks that occur during gridlock, um, which is becoming more common, have to be considered. This isn't just an annoying inconvenience. The night of the Thomas fire, these streets were at a standstill filled with evacuees. I was one of them. We could not get to the fairgrounds. Downtown is a bottleneck during floods, fires, and events. Vehicles from all over come there and get gridlocked. This is going to increase the traffic because of the extra density. We have Ocean Hills Rivers freeways. It is so condensed there. We have to be careful with extra cars. Emergency vehicles, delivery vans, work trucks, buses cannot be blocked by extra traffic. So please consider that in your findings tonight. Consider the health and safety findings of extra cars there beyond the 3.5 stories or 3.25 stories that are allowed, which would be less cars. The EIR for the downtown specific plan studied 54 units per acre, not 100 units per acre. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Ware. Our next speaker is Stephanie Caldwell, followed by Mark Sirota. Good evening, my name is Stephanie Caldwell. I serve as the President and CEO of the Ventura Chamber of Commerce. Uh, the Chamber represents 700 businesses and more than 25,000 employees. I am here in support of the staff recommendation to approve the major design review, coastal development permit, and lot line adjustment as conditioned. It's no secret we have a housing crisis. We are losing workforce to other communities with more employment opportunity, lower cost housing, and higher availability. Our rental vacancy is still hovering below 4%, which is far below a balanced market. Just today, there was a story on KCLU, uh, the title of which a new survey shows that three of the top 10 most expensive markets in the nation for apartment rentals are in the tri-counties, announcing that fifth on the list is Oxnard, Thousand Oaks, and Ventura. It boils down to supply and demand. The demand is here, the supply is not, that drives up costs, and it drives residents out of our community. Projects like 211 Thompson will go a long way to adding much-needed affordable units, even more valuable since they will be at the very low income level. These units are desperately needed. I know that you will hear from many tonight who claim this project will destroy the community character. What does it say about our community character when we cannot provide housing for our residents? We need to be inclusive, and have a place where all of our diverse workforce can live and call home. The state recognizes this issue and the struggle in local communities and has already enacted legislation to encourage density and limit local control, with even more laws looming. I, will, I support infill development and I support this project. Respectfully, I ask that you approve the recommendation. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Caldwell. Our next speaker is Mark Sirota, followed by Nicholas Deitch. Good evening. You, um, I got my uh, slides in apparently late. You all should have a handout. Or it's coming right now. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, because they were turned in after noon. Um, yeah, I was unaware. As long as you have it in front of you. Okay, very good. I apologize to everybody else. The first slide, I'm going to, you, you heard. Hold, hold on a moment. Yep. 
Um, let me get these. Can get my there. time back, though. Thank you. Okay. Would you like to proceed? Very good. Thank you. Um, you heard uh, previously mentioned the cumulative effect that the uh, Coastal Commission takes into account, into account given their wisdom. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about future of projects. They take into account past, present, and future. Um, and then on the bottom, I just do want to point out on a downtown specific plan, they say preserve and enhance public views of the ocean, mountains, and culturally sensitive buildings such as the Santa Bernadette Mission and City Hall. Um, next slide. Um, this is a, a proposed project, a Park Plaza. Uh, it's going to be on uh, Laurel, uh, excuse me, um, Santa Clara and Fur. I uh, had a design review committee meeting in uh, January of this year. It's five stories, 80 units. Its maximum height is 72 feet, 7 inches. It's zoned again T5.1. So it's um, not too dissimilar from uh, the project we're talking about. Next slide. I'm kind of low tech, but I grew up with slide rulers, so. I measured the palm tree that happens to be in the post office lot across from it. I uh, can get it pretty good, and it happens to be 73 feet, so pretty close to the, the height of the building that's proposed to go in, uh, across from, uh, right across the street from it. Next slide. If I take a picture at Poli, uh, down fur, I drew a red line, a black line across from the palm tree, and then a red line where that new project uh, is proposed, and you can see the extent at which uh, ocean views are going to be compromised pretty significantly. I haven't had time, but I think if you move, take the uh, vantage point off to the east of uh, Fur, that it might potentially block some of the views of the islands as well. Next slide. So this is just, uh, since we're concerned about views of the hills as well as the ocean, um, that's the palm tree. Think about what a building approximately that height will look like in that location. And by the way, that's similar in height to the building we're talking about tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sirota. Our next speaker is Karen Flock. Good evening, members of the Planning Commission. My name is Karen Flock. I am a resident of Midtown Ventura. I support this project. We need this housing and this affordable housing. Um, our city has committed to SOAR, and that means we need to make the best use of our limited land resources. This is a great infill site. Higher density infill housing um, addresses environmental sustainability in other ways. Just to quote an EPA study that found that residents in higher density neighborhoods use 40% less electricity and 50% less water than folks who live in low-density housing. That's from a Turner Center study on unlocking the potential of missing middle housing. And as I said at the last meeting, um, I work for the Housing Authority. We own the Palms. It's been mentioned a couple of times tonight. It's a seven-story building on this block, 75 feet tall. It's a great community, and it's part of our historical context. So please approve this project. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Flock. Our next speaker is Melanie uh, Pershkin, followed by Judy Alexander. Hi. Um, I, I only want to say um, my question 
the reasoning or the nature of expanding time towards applicants, but then saying that uh, residents' comments are redundant and limiting that time, that seems a little bit uh, uh, nefarious. Um, but anybody who lives downtown and was they saw what happened this last weekend just with the Strawberry Festival um, knows that there's an issue with density already in downtown. Basically, residents were locked in their homes. We couldn't leave or get out for two days. It, it took almost two hours to, to even go less than half a mile. Um, they want me to mention that you don't need to make a, a, a building six stories to have affordable housing. But the affordable housing uh, is, is not real. It's 13 units. There, it's not enough in general. And market rates are basically um, dictated by corporations and, uh, and, 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 and other bigger market values than, than any residents have power over. So th this is more of just a power grab for money, and it, it doesn't really do anything for the city. And as somebody who's in design, um, I, I found the PowerPoint presentation and the 3D thing to be rudimentary and not very impressive. And um, the design is ugly, and I don't think it will age well. And it takes away from the character of downtown's historic nature. And I don't understand why it can't be at least aesthetically pleasing. Thank you, Ms. Perskin. Our next public speaker is Julie Alexander, followed by Bob Guthrie. Good evening, and thank you for listening to us all again. Um, appreciate it. I'm chair of the Ventura Social Service Task Force and a resident of the city of Ventura since 1966. When I moved here, the city is not what it is now. The population is not what it is now. The needs are not what it is now. We have to match the times. Things that were done in the 60s and 70s were great for the 60s and 70s. They are, do not work in the 2020s. And we need to adjust, whether we like it or not. People, families, workforce need to take precedent over somebody's view. People need to matter more than anything else. I am tired of seeing people come into One Stop who are working full time and are on the street that we all get upset at because there's no housing. I join with the chamber so you have housing advocates advocates for those that are unhoused, and the business community, all saying to you, this needs to happen. We need to approve more housing. And the fact that inclusionary is an important part of it matters a great deal. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Alexander. Our next public speaker is Bob Guthrie. 
Mr. Guthrie, I've made you a panelist. Uh, Mr. Guthrie also has a PowerPoint, and he has had time ceded to him by Natalie Brexton and Wendy Sother. He will have six minutes. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Good evening. I want to start with a couple of comments based on uh, some things I heard tonight. First, when this project is complete, it will increase our average rents in our city, not lower them. This is a premium project. It's not going to lower rental rates. It will raise them on average. Secondly, it was mentioned that the scenic designation of Poli didn't make it into the LCP. Well, that's completely irrelevant. The code doesn't specify a roadway must be declared scenic. It says it must be a public roadway or a public space. And last, there was a fairly lengthy discussion on what is included in our coastal resources. And what was left out are views. And if you look at resolution five, which you must make tonight, the whole thing is about preserving views. So I, that upset me a little bit, but not very much. Okay, now I'm gonna go on to my regular presentation. Tonight, I'm gonna show you two methods that establish the 211 Thompson project as proposed will negatively impact public scenic views while a DTSP compliant building would not, thus making finding five in the resolution invalid. First slide, please. I can't tell if it's up or not. I'll assume it is. This first slide was taken from Poli just west of Palm. To the upper right, you can see the roof of the core apartments, and beyond that, the peak of the wave penthouses. The penthouses are the arched roof structures. Clearly visible beyond the wave is the Santa Barbara Channel and Santa Cruz Island. We know from the project plans that the peak height of the wave penthouse is 62 feet. It was previously reported that the height was greater, but that was the height above sea level, and that was corrected in the most recent staff report. We also know that a DTSP conforming building would be 54 feet tall, comprised of an 18 foot first story and three 12 foot floors. Since the wave doesn't block ocean views and is eight feet taller than a DTSP conforming building, one might jump to the conclusion that a compliant building wouldn't block views either. But before making this conclusion, you have to take into account where the buildings sit relative to sea level. Next slide, please and I'll assume it's up. From our city GIS data map, we know the wave sits at 12 feet above sea level while the 211 site is 16 feet above sea level. Doing the math, the peak of the wave is 74 feet above sea level while a DTSP conforming building would be 70 feet above sea level. So relative to sea level, the wave is actually four feet taller than a 211 Thompson conforming building would be. This real-world analysis confirms that because the wave is taller and preserves views, a DTSP-conforming building would also preserve views of the Santa Barbara Channel and the islands. Now, for a more scientific analysis. Using trigonometry and the properties of right triangles, it is easy to determine that the proposed 211 building will block views while a conforming one won't. From the GIS map, we know that Poli Street at Palm is 80 feet above sea level. Eye level for an average person walking along Poli, and they're gonna be the people enjoying the views, not somebody driving by at 25 miles an hour. Average person's viewing height would be about five feet, which results in a viewing perspective height of 85 feet. 
Before doing any trig, which I know you can't wait to see, let's consider the Palms building, which has been talked about quite a bit tonight. The building is 75 feet tall and sits at about 17 feet above sea level for a total height of 92 feet above sea level. Since 92 feet is taller than 85 feet, the viewing height that I'm mentioning, it's obvious it blocks all ocean views. Now consider the proposed 211 building. It has a height, of, a height above sea level of 85 feet, which is the sum of its base at 16 feet above sea level, plus its structure height of 69 feet. Since the total height of 211 and the viewer height are equal at 85 feet, it too will block all ocean views. Okay, now it's time for the promised trigonometry and the slide that shows uh, the graph, please. And I'll assume it's up. And first, in the interest of full disclosure, there's a typo on this slide. The denoted length of side C of the triangle would be virtually the same as side B. And if you want to know why, I'm happy to explain it. Okay, looking at the graph, the viewing height is depicted on the x-axis while the conforming building is represented by the heavy blue vertical line just to the right of that axis. As previously mentioned, the top of a DTSP conforming building would sit 70 feet above sea level. From Google Earth, which the city knows to be pretty accurate, the, two, uh, the 211 site is just under 1,400 feet from Poli at Palm Street. East Anacapa is just under 100,000 feet from Poli at Palm. These distances are shown on the y-axis. Now knowing side A and B of the triangle, which in this case are the viewing height on Poli, the x-axis, and the distance from Poli to East Anacapa Island, the y-axis, the minor acute angle is approximately 0 0.049 degrees. Doing this again, but starting from the 211 site, the resulting minor acute angle is approximately 0 0.041 degrees. Since this second angle is smaller, it proves scientifically that a conforming building won't block views of Anacapa Island. Now I'll spare you any more trig, but doing so establishes that a conforming 211 building would also allow viewing of most of the Santa Barbara Channel. Thank you, Mr. Guthrie. Appreciate the work. Chair Condon? Yes. Uh, that concludes our public speakers. All right, very good. Um, does the applicant care to make any further statements based upon public comment? I'm closing the public hearing now. I'll be brief. Um, just really want to commend the community for coming forward and providing this additional information. A lot of it was very detailed and clearly they spent a lot of time going through uh, our documents and also just um, observing throughout the neighborhood. Uh, you know, look, we did the same and I would also say that staff did the same and I want to just want to commend staff for um, providing the findings in the record and in the resolution here this evening. I think you've all had a chance to review it. I just want to say that, look, despite the objections, the project, as it's currently proposed, is supported by substantial evidence, and that substantial evidence is included in the findings that have been referenced numerous times this evening. And, you know, based on what we heard from staff, at least at the beginning of, of the meeting, it 
appears that Coastal Commission has always been has also been briefed, and the findings have been presented to the Coastal Commission staff, and uh, it appears that the Coastal Commission also essentially does not at least does not object to the additional findings provided by staff. So. I'll end with that. We're here as a team, as I mentioned before, to, and happy to answer any other questions. And I appreciate the public discussion. Thank you. Okay, I'm gonna bring it back to the commission here. I see Commissioner McCarty followed by Commissioner Farley. Thank you, I have a good number of comments. Um, first of all, <clears throat> regarding the, the staff report and the staff presentation, um, as I mentioned to the applicant team, uh, a lot of work went into that. So I want to acknowledge and say how much I appreciate you, Gene, did, and your team. I don't know if you put that staff report together yourself. If you did, that, that was a ton of work. Uh, Commissioner, I'd like to say that teamwork makes the dream work. Okay, good, good. So um, uh, the, the staff report and presentation were excellent. So I want to acknowledge that and thank you very much. Um, given that, I do have a couple of comments about the staff report. And please take these in the um, spirit of constructive criticism uh, for future uh, staff reports that are presented to us. Um, on, on page five, a comment is made, the project as conditioned is generally consistent with the goals, policies, and actions of the downtown specific plan. So a suggestion for future staff reports, um, the project as conditioned is generally consistent is, is kind of a vague and ambiguous statement. What would be much more helpful for my review of the project is for one of the two following statements to appear here. Either number one, the project as conditioned meets all of the goals of the goals, policies, and actions of the downtown specific plan, or two, the project as conditioned does not meet all of the goals, policies, or actions of the downtown specific plan. So either it does meet them all or it doesn't meet them all. If you say it generally meets them, I kind of get confused at the beginning of the staff report. So maybe be more specific um, with regard to whether it meets all the goals or doesn't meet all the goals. Um, on page 17 of the staff report regarding concessions and waivers, uh, the statement is made, in accordance with the state density bonus law, the city must grant requested concessions unless the city makes a finding based on certain substantial evidence. Also on the same page, it says, for denials of concessions or waivers, the burden of proof is on the city. The applicant indicates the concession and concessions and waivers are necessary to avoid rendering the project infeasible to, be built, to build, and because there is no substantial evidence on record, that would support denying the request concessions or waivers. Okay, all that is well and good. But now I feel like I've been left waiting for the other shoe to drop. Uh, what these statements say is the city must make a finding or the burden of proof is on the city. So what I'm expecting at this point in the staff report is some examination of at least some evidence that might have been put forward regarding potential hindrances to granting these concessions or waivers. In other words, the staff report does an in-depth analysis of all the arguments to be made in favor of this project, but it is quiet on any discussion of arguments against the project. And irrespective of the final recommendation by staff in the report, either for 
or against, a, a truly unbiased analysis would present both the pros and cons of a project. I feel like I didn't get that in this report. What would be helpful to readers of future staff reports would be an analysis along the lines of, here are all of the arguments that can be made in support of approving this project, and here are all of the arguments that can be made against approving this project. The analysis, the analysis should lay out both sides of the issue so that the commission has all the facts with which to make a decision. So just please, again, take those in the spirit of making future staff reports more clear and more readable to, to the audience. But I, I want to say, once again, tremendous job on putting this report together. Um, so thank you. I have some comments on the resolution. Is it possible to bring up the, the copy of the resolution? Or, or, or I, can, I can just speak to them either way. Feel free to speak with them, and I, I'll consult to see if we can get it up okay. on the screen. Okay. <laughs> resolution, page 19, paragraph 27, states uh, that project lighting should be in compliance with International Dark Sky Association standards. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am so pleased to see that. I can't tell you how much I'm, uh, that, that makes me happy. Warms the cockles of my, hearts, of my heart. Um, page 20, paragraph 32. Trash enclosures shall be provided and maintained at the site. The enclosures shall be located and designed per planning commission approval. So how is that requirement accomplished? How is the planning commission, how does the planning commission weigh in on trash enclosures? Thank you for that question. So the planning commission weighs in on that by basically, if the project is approved by the planning commission, that trash as a demonstrator shown on the site plan and the project plans, basically saying, hey, you guys are showing trash, act, trash in this location on the site plan, you have to build it, you have to make sure it's implemented in that way. So it's just um, what the city will do is, if the project is approved, our uh, public works department will make sure that the trash enclosure is designed and built in a way in which that the applicant uh, showed and that the planning commission approved. Okay, so we, as a team, have to be aware to look on the project plans to identify where the trash enclosure is and make sure that's okay. Correct. Okay. All right, uh, page 20, paragraph 34. Any me mechanical and or electrical equipment, including solar panels, to be located on the roof of the structure or pad mounted on the site shall be shown in the site plan and elevation plans and shall be completely screened from view in a manner as approved by the Planning Commission and the Planning Division. So the same answer to the, to the pre previous question. We have to look at the site plans and ensure that solar panels look good to us. That is correct, and what staff we usually try to work toward is we work with the, ap the applicants on uh, all projects that come through and propose solar panels. We, and also mechanical, we encourage applicants to be sure to screen those by having a, uh, a inappropriate uh, height of the parapet. So that way, you know, you don't see like mechanical equipment and solar panels sticking when you're viewing from the public right of way. So if you're on the sidewalk looking up or any further away, those, uh, pieces of equipment will be sc proper, appropriately screened. Okay, thank you. If um, I may add to that as well, uh, you will th see a theme in the resolution and the conditions because this resolution and permit is approved by the Planning Commission. In essence, you approve all of 
the conditions. So every condition is referencing the Planning Commission as the review reviewer body. Uh, we do have application submittal requirements that we review, and if you do look through the plans, you will see the solar panels and things of that nature. Staff does review that, um, as well as the other members of the staff team um, from other departments to do that. So if, if you do look through the conditions of approval, Planning Commission is referenced mm -hmm. because it is a permit approved by the Planning okay. Commission. Just, yeah, I just wanted to, to clarify that. I wasn't sure if it would if the trash plan or the solar panel plan would come back to us at some time to, to, to be pointed out to us specifically or whether we just have to infer from the project plans what we're approving. Understood. And next steps, if a project is approved, they do go through full engineering drawings and construction. That is all reviewed by city staff to make sure they're conforming to the approved plans as well as the specifications required by either city or state law. Okay. Thank you. Um, page two of the resolution... Um, talks about one of the goals from the 1989 comprehensive plan, and it says that this project meets uh, meets that particular goal. Um, so, it the, the resolution talks about goals from the 1989 comprehensive plan that are, that are met, but it doesn't talk about goals from the 1989 comprehensive plan that aren't met. So, so for the record, I just want to talk about a couple of those things. From the 1989 comprehensive plan, general design, objectives, policies, and programs. Policy 1.1, right up front, this is the very first policy in the 1989 comprehensive plan, quote, recognize and protect natural features of the city, including views of the ocean, islands, and hillsides. Comprehensive plan, page 395, uh, policy 6.8, given its natural vistas, e.g. ocean, mountains, rivers, and, and open areas, consider the following routes, scenic drives within the city's planning area. One of them is Figueroa Street. So according to the 1989 Comprehensive Plan, Figueroa Street is designated as a scenic drive. Although the 2005 general plan has not yet been fully certified by the California Coastal Commission as part of the local coastal plan, I believe the letter and the spirit of the 2005 general plan are worth noting. So I want to put these into the record. 2005 general plan introduction, quote, managing growth to improve our quality of life and standard of living is the smart thing to do. Ventura residents don't want uncontrolled growth and suburban sprawl. We also don't want traffic gridlock, more cookie-cutter tracked houses, or housing prices that make Ventura unaffordable for working families. By targeting new development to areas that would benefit from reinvestment, and by respecting our historic character and sense of place, smart growth is a better alternative. 2005 General Plan Vision Statement. Ventura is a community that protects and restores ocean views as a scenic backdrop for its high-quality urban environment. 2005 General Plan Policy 4D, protect views along scenic routes. Quote, require development along the following roadways, including noise mitigation, landscaping, and advertising, to respect and preserve views of the community and its natural context. One of the roadways listed under this action plan is Figueroa Street. Indeed, the action, this action for protection of the scenic views along Figueroa Street is included in the land use plan of the city's local coastal program, and the lead entity for this action item is the Community Development Department. 
Finally, going even more recently, the vision statement from the current draft updated general plan recently endorsed by City Council. Quote, the residents of Ventura will work together to protect the characteristics we cherish the most, including the California beach town and character and views of the ocean and hills. So let me go to one more comment from the resolution, page six, paragraph five, uh, one of the, the findings. This, quote, this development does not significantly obstruct public views of the coastline, views from any public road or from a public recreation area, as per the municipal code. Quote, public views of the coastline from the north of Highway 101 are already limited and obscured due to existing development the higher elevation of the highway than most of the properties within the downtown area and the amount of mature landscaping that exists in downtown and in the vicinity of the coastline. So in the resolution, this is talking about views of the coastline from Highway 101. So this is what's called a red herring. It's a distraction from the subject at hand. The current status of public views in areas that have nothing to do with this project site have no bearing on this finding. They're irrelevant. In, this, in the relation to this finding. So this comment should not appear in the resolution. Um, the same paragraph goes on to say, Figueroa Plaza is a north-south pedestrian street located north of the project site beginning at Santa Clara Street. This pedestrian street is improved with pavers, landscaping, and a water fountain. This is another red herring. What does that have to do with not obstructing public views of the coastline? Ah. We find out in the next sentence, quote, the project helps to reinforce the connection between the mission and the oceanfront through meeting the required 10-foot setback on Figueroa Street along the length of site frontage which widens this view corridor. What this is saying is that the view is not obstructed because the view corridor is widened by having a 10-foot setback along Figueroa Street. The statement in the resolution leads me to wonder how a view corridor is widened by the construction of a six-story building. So I have a couple more comments later on, but let me leave it at that for now because I need a drink of water. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Farley. Thank you. And I appreciate the community and the staff's report um, on the project. Um, having worked in several communities that have coastal plans adopted, um, the determination of not having a significantly obstructed public view is one that's debated everywhere along the coast, and I don't think that we'll stop here today. Uh, one thing that I think is important in the letter from the um, Coastal Commission at the last meeting is talking about cumulative impacts and not project by project. And so it, this is maybe a comment and maybe a question for staff at what tipping point the Coastal Commission feels that we've hit a boundary of um, limiting public uh, views of the ocean. I've driven Poli my whole life, back and forth. Today I did today, and as you drive along, you see it, and it goes away, and you see it, and it goes away. Um, so at what point do we find that it's um, we would deny a project? Um, personally, I don't have an issue with this particular project, with this particular finding, um, but I think it is worth a discussion because I think that's where the public is coming from. Is when when would we eventually hit a wall with this finding? That concludes my comment. All right. Thank you. 
Commissioner Abbey. Um, I have questions of staff, um, and it involves, um, I had spoke with uh, Director Zayer yesterday and earlier today regarding having availability of items, so make sure that staff was prepared for my questions. Um, that was the first one. Uh, go back. Okay, building profile and frontage. So in that view on the screen right now is a view of the maximum height diagram for the downtown specific plan. Um, what it doesn't include uh, was, was in the packet. Um, I can see City Hall above the core along California Street, if you could, yes. So then California Street runs north-south. The next street over is, is it Oak Street? That's Oak, okay. And then the next one over is Palm. And then the next one over coming down from the Mission would be Figueroa. Okay. And uh, could you, yes, thank you, anticipated my question, where is the project site? And as the director pointed out, uh, the 211 project falls outside of the, the, these uh, focus areas within downtown. It, it does fall within the T5.1, but uh, it did mention uh, comparison projects that mainly, including Finney, uh, fell in within the core. Uh, the core has higher densities. Um, could you go to the slide that actually spells out the heights of the core, the taper, the fringe, and the mission? So, uh, Commissioner Abbey, we only provided this graphic. Were there more, yeah, more I, information? Yeah, uh, there wasn't another graphic, but uh, to go along with this, I had asked yesterday that the core be explained in the graphic. Um, so, for example, I'll, I'll read it out loud. I was hoping for the benefit of the public and for the um, planning, my fellow planning commissioners. Core area is the most intense area of the downtown as envisioned by the downtown specific plan at four stories for primary building with a 20% building footprint that would be five stories. Uh, the fringe area, which this project falls just right outside of the fringe area, just to the west of it, is three stories for primary buildings, 25% of building footprint. Uh, taper area, three stories with 25% four-story, but also including a 25-foot setback for four-story. I would, I think that should be step-back for fourth-story for Oak and California Streets. And then, of course, the mission is three stories for primary building. I think when we say that this project within the staff report, um, uh, identifies projects within the area, this, as uh, it was instructed to me and as I'm aware, this falls just right outside of these areas, but the building as proposed is significantly bigger than even allowed under the core. I just wanted to make that point. Um, on the mission uh, coming down from Figueroa Street running north-south, you have on the south 
east corner, the Court of Appeals building, and that's where the pointer is showing. That's two-story. Across the street, you have three Victorians on, running on Victoria that are one-story. You have a Fa uh, Victorian right there that, of roughly three stories. And then we have a project that presents as five and goes up to six stories. Uh, maybe it presents as four, but we know that first and second floor are, basically there's five story and it goes up to six story on 31%. So to say that this project is comparable in size, I don't think truly characterizes the impact that this building has at this particular site. Um, I wanted to, uh, I had also asked that uh, finding five be shown. Uh, this is something that we used to do on planning commission that would, so is all of this finding five? The first bullet is uh, the first finding for the coastal development permit findings or what you're referring to in the resolution is quote unquote finding five, but you're referring to bullet, the first bullet point. Okay, I, I, think this, I think this statement's critical because I do wanna preface my further comments by saying I do very much appreciate all of the work that staff has done, Gene and, and Netta and the rest of the staff. Um, so my comments um, don't reflect on the work done by the staff. I appreciate the staff. I appreciate all the work that has gone into this, and I realize there's been a tremendous amount of work, as well as with the applicant, a tremendous amount of work that's gone in. Um, finding five, in order for the Planning Commission to approve this project at all, you have to agree with every one of the findings, and this is a critical finding. The development, development does not significantly obstruct public views of the coastline. Views from any public road or from a public recreation area. I just wanted to point that out. Um, let's go to finding six. And this goes back to my original point. Um, the development does not significantly obstruct public views of, let's see, that's not finding six. Finding six is the development is compatible with the established physical scale and character of the area. And in the DRC letter of December 7th, the Planning Commission notes, the Coastal Commission notes that the DRC hearing of December 7th indicates that the DRC provided feedback to the applicant on the building design, including that, quote, the building height is higher than what is appropriate for this location in downtown, unquote, and that, quote, A, maximum height of three stories would be more in line with the existing context. Um, going back to my original point regarding the mission, um, you've got one story, you could argue two story, but one story mission, you have the one story uh, historical, there's several historical sites along this mission area, uh, the Figueroa Corridor I should say, um, 
historical Victorian homes, one stories, and so to say that a five to six story building in scale does not detract from the historical significance of what else is going on in the corridor, I think, well, I'll just give my opinion. I don't think that that, that conforms. I just don't think that that agrees. Um, I do wanna, I have further comments regarding all the positives in this project, but I wanted to lay these out because these are sort of bottom line findings that we must find and say affirmatively, yes, this is true, this is exactly what's happening. And at this point, um, I, I wanna hear from my fellow commissioners uh, their, their feelings regarding these findings because I think this is the bottom line on this particular project. Regard, regardless of all of the many, many positives of this project, most importantly, the 13 very low income, uh, the 15% very low income affordable units, very valuable, very important, but have to buy, balance that with the local coastal plan findings. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Abbey. Commissioner Zucker. Thank you, Chair Cobden. Um, before I get started with my comments on the, the project, just wanted to make a um, you know, quick comment on the, the kind of timing issue. You know, I, I think I'm, I'm you know, very sympathetic to, to the chair around you know, wanting to, to you know, limit time and, and you know, I, I, got a, I got a cranky toddler at home, but, but I do think you know, in the future I'd love to be consistent with, I think it's fair for us to, to you know, be strict on the developer, the, the applicant kind of timing and the, and the public timing, and I think it's fair for us to be you know, loose on the applicant timing and the developer and the, and the you know, public timing, but I think we should be consistent with both, right? Um, on the project, I, I want to start with, with um, talking a little bit about you know, kind of the density bonus, because I think that's, that's a key issue that comes up in so many of the projects we face, where the state has basically said, because we're in this huge housing crisis statewide, that um, basically cities have to give a little uh, in terms of our development standards uh, if if a project includes some, some level of affordability, right? And there's, there's a trade-off there, and almost everything in public policy is about, about trade-offs. Um, so the way I view a lot of these projects is I, I don't believe in giving away something for nothing when we don't have to, and I, I've voted against and advocated against projects that I didn't feel like had earned their variances, right? Um, that, that are not providing us with a lot of affordable housing um, and are you know, asking for significant variances to, to height or to, you know, whatever, whatever the, the code may be. Um, I think in the case of this project, what I'll say is over, over my, you know, four plus years on the Planning Commission, I think this is probably the deepest level of affordability I've seen on any project um, that's come before us. I, I could be missing one, but um, the 15% very low is, is, you know, actually in context, a pretty high level of affordability. Um, and that 15% very low, we, we spent a lot of time on this planning commission talking about the inclusionary housing ordinance and is it viable for us to require 15% very low affordable? And, and there were folks saying, no, that's not viable and you know, it, that would be, be too costly. And I think, you know, to me, I'm really excited to see a project showing that it is viable to, to reach that 15% very low. I think you know, in part it's viable because of the density bonus, right? 
Um, but that's uh, really important to me, right? Uh, and that that affordability um, at that at that level is is you know actually actually a big deal, and I think you know deserves deserves some credit um, in in how we view this project, and you know, and legally speaking, requires some credit in how we view this project. Um, you know, I'll, I'll also say I I walk down Poli all the time. I mean, I. I live in this neighborhood, that's, that's my walk to City Hall and back. Um, I love the ocean view from Poli. I mean, it's, it's beautiful, right? Um, and I, you know, I don't want that view to go away, um, you know, but, you know, as Commissioner Bruce has said, it, there is kind of you, as you walk, it's there, it's not there, it's there, it's not there, you know, as you're, as you're passing things. And, um, you know, I, I personally would be willing to, you know, trade a, a slice of that view from Poli um, you know, in, in order for 13 families who might otherwise be on our streets, who might otherwise have to, you know, leave this community um, to have a home and a place to live, um, you know, in, in a beautiful, incredible downtown of, of Ventura. Um, you know, and I, I think it's, it is hard to, to kind of see where's that tipping point where there's too many buildings, right, that are, that are blocking the view of Poli or, you know, it's a little bit of a subjective thing, right? Um, this, you know, does it substantially block the view of the ocean? I mean, pretty much any building in our downtown blocks the view of the ocean from some public street. And so it's, it's kind of hard, I think, as a planning commissioner to make, like, an objective judgment call on, on that. Um, you know, but I, I think if, if uh, you know, if it's true that the Coastal Commission has said that they're, they're okay with this project, I mean, that, that's maybe as... as objective as we can get in terms of that is a agency that's pretty tough. I mean, the Coastal Commission is not easy to, like, get their green light on things, right? Um, and, and so if they're, if they're saying that, you know, uh, this is, this is compliant, I mean, I think, I think that should be taken under consideration. And, um, so that's, that's probably the, the lens that I would, I would look at the, the coastal view issue. Um, you know, in general, I, I do think infill density is important. Uh, as a community that's committed to soar, it's committed to not, you know, developing over our farmland with sprawl, you know, cookie cutter, you know, single family tract homes and, um, you know, building up on our fire prone hillsides, right? Um, we're gonna need housing somewhere. And I, I think, you know, this lot has been an empty lot for a pretty long time. I do a lot of walking down that Figaro corridor. I love that corridor. You know, that's, that's my walk to the beach. Um, and I would say that empty lot is, you know, probably the worst part of that corridor right now, right? It's, it's you know, it's a, it's been an abandoned lot for a long time, right? Um, and so I, I, you know, this may not be the, the perfect project, but, you know, I, I think it's probably an improvement on the, the existing state of that, that lot, right? Um, so I think at a, at a big picture, I do want to just talk overall about housing and development and density because I think we, we come up with a, a lot of kind of legal reasons, you know, for or against a project, but sometimes that's at its core what's driving and motivating us. And, um, you know, I think not building housing um, is how you get to where Santa Barbara is and Ojai is. Um, and those are communities that have really prioritized preserving the visual character of stuff, the, the physical built environment of how a community looks if you were to just take a picture and not limit it and not talk to people in it, um, you know, and not be part of that community. Um, and I think that's come at terrible cost. 
Um, I think that those communities have lost a lot of their character um, in terms of who lives in those communities, who can afford to live in those communities, whether families can afford to live in those communities, whether uh, you know, working class people um, can live in those communities. Um, and so I, I wanna make sure that we're not preserving what we think is the character of our community um, at, a, at a visual level while losing the character of our community in who can afford to be here um, and who is part of the fabric of this community. So um, all that is, is to say, I think, you know, that's, that's why I would, I would lean towards approving this project. Thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Busa. Thank you, Chair. Uh, the downtown specific plan mentioned uh, several times this evening um, has a number of um, standards that must that should be met. Uh, 56 out of 63 standards are met by this project, and 88 percent, thus lending itself to the general uh, conformity. I would even consider that above general conformity. The two standards not met by this project this evening are the building height and the off-street parking, um, the warrants of which uh, the applicant has requested to use concessions uh, in line with state density bonus. And as we heard from Assistant uh, Attorney, uh, City Attorney, the, the start of this meeting, uh, the, the uh, not approving this project would result in potential legal lawsuit for the City of Ventura. Um, which something I would personally like to avoid. Um, I do want to thank staff for the updates that were made since the last meeting we met. You definitely saw some additional content um, added to there. Um, I appreciate the applicant's response to the Coastal Commission's request as well as the state density uh, based density calculation review. Uh, that also determined, uh, helped identify that with or without a parking structure included in that, this still is conforming to state density bonus laws and appreciate the work done there. Um, I would like to reiterate that our esteemed colleagues in DRC did approve this project with a majority approval. Um, and I do believe that investments into downtown are what help make downtown prosper and what have over the last 20 years. Um, it, investments bring new opportunities and it's clear that we need more housing in, in Ventura. We need more housing in areas um, that not creep into our sore lands. Um, this, is, this is a supply and demand issue. Um, we all faced during the pandemic when we lost supplies of certain uh, goods, the prices went up. Uh, it, it's a supply and demand issue. Prices are high because supply is low and we need to add more supply in order to help balance out the cost of living in this community. Um, I, deviations from downtown specific plan are allowable with the concessions um, and given everything my commissioners have said tonight, I'm in agreement a lot with what you have said, Commissioner Zucker, uh, and I would move forward uh, with approval of this project. Okay. I'll make some comments. It's wonderful to live in a community where people care this much, where we live in a beautiful place and we value what we have. It's very easy to destroy paradise. And once done, you can't go back. 
It just doesn't happen. You know, there are some interesting places in these United States, Washington, D.C., Sacramento, even uh, Kauai, where they have height limitations based upon certain things. Nothing can be taller than the Capitol. Nothing can be taller than a date palm tree. What that does is it helps retain a certain character in the community. And I really admire that. And this is one of those communities where size matters. So I want to give kudos to the applicant. Um, it's a modern, relatively attractive building. I, th I think it's a, a well-designed idea. I also wish it were in the core where I could say, yeah, I'm really feeling it. Um, where it is, is a bit of a shock to our system because nothing has been on the Meta site for 20 years. And when you see flat, anything looks big. This looks especially big. But this is going to be built for a 100-year arc, maybe more. I don't know what building lifespans are now, but maybe more. And 50 years from now, this might be in keeping with how the community has evolved. But to be sure, I think we'll all agree that this being built as a first and primary on this corner in this section of Thompson will be a shock to the system. And uh, I, I love all the demonstrations of the, the views and the, and the traffic and Yes, all of these things are challenges, and as a city grows, we have to look at them not only individually, but in, in, the, in the group, because we will lose some of the things that we love. I remember when the parking meters were a gigantic issue. I think like 130 parking meters in a city with 2,000 free parking spaces downtown. You would have thought that World War III it just started. Um, but there's a reason for it. Um, that was to get people to move out of those parking spaces so that others could come in. It's traffic control, not so much monetary gain. I understand the applicant's desire to get as much height as they possibly can because, as was illustrated in a comment they made, the freeway blocks the first two or three layers of this from an ocean view. And if you live close to the ocean, you kind of want to take advantage of that. So I completely understand where they're coming from. By the same token, this is one, if not among the top three heights of any building downtown. And unfortunately, it's closer to the coast. If it were backed up against this hillside here and not obstructing views and less visually impactful than it is, it'd be an easier decision. But all those things are not the case with this particular site. The difficulty here is it's still somewhat muddy. I mean, as explained in the last meeting, which I missed, but I, I watched the video of, is, is what are charges here? We act in a quasi-judicial manner, and all of my feelings 
don't matter as much as what my job really is, which is to take a look at the facts and vote in the community's best interest based upon those facts and the laws as we understand it. After all this discussion, I'm still a little confused as to whether we are really exposing ourselves to a liability if we say, well, this finding wasn't met, therefore we're going to say no. It's complicated. Again, I wish it were in the core. We need the housing. We need great design. We have too many infill opportunities that go unfulfilled. And compared to some of the projects I've seen, this is above average in visibility, in housing for those less fortunate, uh, in many ways. They didn't need to provide parking, but they did. It adds, the Coastal Commission is unusual in that they step back after making some comments, they step back and they don't re reply, you've, you've met the standard that we were concerned about, as it's been explained to me, unless they come with another set of objections or criteria, they're going to let it, let it do its thing. So if I had a clearer understanding, um, of whether we would expose ourselves um, to litigation based upon whether the LCP versus the DBL and all these acronyms and the complexity of it, it, it might help us to be more clear. Do you have some input? I wish I could give you a, a clear, uh, uh, perfect set of criteria to work with. The fact is there is a muddy relationship between the Coastal Act uh, and the density bonus law. Uh, that said, um, the, to the extent that there is some control that the Coastal Act has over the density bonus law, uh, it is meant to be in keeping with the goals of the Coastal Act rather than the specific particulars of the, um, the local coastal plan as adopted. Um, I would caution the commission to be very, very wary of denying this project based on anything other than clear objective criteria. Uh, the two that keep coming up are compliance, or the two criteria that keep coming up are not objective. They're highly subjective. Uh, views and the local character. Denying this project based on those two criteria, I believe, would invite a lawsuit. Thank you for the feedback. Commissioners, do you have other comments you'd like to make? Okay, uh, Commissioner McCarty followed by Commissioner Abbey. Thank you. Um, in, in the project package, what was included was Exhibit A, the project plans submitted by the applicant. And uh, part of that was a letter from RRM Design Group to the city. On page six of the letter, it states, as demonstrated by the project's application materials and pursuant to the provisions of the state density bonus law, the project complies with all applicable objective standards, policies, and criteria imposed by the city's municipal code and the DTSP. Moreover, the project is consistent with the city's certified local coastal program." End quote. I'd like to relate my thoughts on that statement. No matter how much objectivity is infused into the planning appro approval process, part of it 
will always remain subjective. Decisions such as what constitutes a significant amount of view obstruction or whether or not a given design fits the character of the surrounding area are placed in the hands of appointed representatives, as in the case of the Planning Commission, or elected officials, in the case of City Council. Those representatives, we here in front of you, are tasked with hard decisions that have to be made while both abiding by regulations, guidelines, and legal statutes, and by considering the input of our constituency, the residents of Ventura. What we bring individually to the table when formulating our decisions is our experience, our knowledge, our training, and our skill sets. What we share as a group is our desire to make the best decisions possible for the future of the city, whether or not we agree as a group on what that path forward looks like. So now let me tap into my experience, knowledge, training, and skill set. I'd like to start with Mr. Bob Guthrie's letter and presentation regarding the key considerations for required findings, the gist of which has been re-articulated re by public speakers here tonight. Mr. Guthrie's analysis and evidence create a strong argument that required findings five and six on the Planning Commission resolution regarding obstruction of public views and, and compatibility with the physical scale of the proposed project are on shaky ground. First, I agree with Mr. Guthrie's interpretation of the letter submitted by Mr. Walt Deppey of the California Coastal Commission that what the city should be concerned with is the potential cumulative visual resource impacts of the project in addition to other future projects. Mr. Guthrie's conclusion, supported by photographs and analysis, is that finding five cannot be made because the non-conforming height of the project alone and in conjunction with past projects and potential future buildings will significantly obstruct public views of the coastline from a public road. Second, I also agree with Mr. Guthrie's argument regarding incompatibility of the physical scale and character of the proposed project. Again, citing the letter from the California Coastal Commission and reiterating input from perhaps the major stakeholder in this discussion, Reverend Thomas Elowat, pastor of the San Buenaventura Mission, Mr. Guthrie's conclusion is that finding six cannot be made if the project at 211 Thompson would serve to understate the historical significance of the area. I find the key considerations for required findings articulated by Mr. Guthrie very compelling. Indeed, more compelling than the arguments presented in favor of the findings by the applicant and by the city. On a different note, we're all aware that the city must grant requested concessions unless the city makes a finding based on substantial evidence that the concession would create a specific adverse impact to, among other things, safety. In that regard, I believe an important data point has been overlooked. I, too, was at the intersection of Thompson Boulevard and Figueroa Street last Saturday morning. That was the morning of the first day of the Strawberry Festival at the fairgrounds. As many of you are aware, that was also the morning of what was likely one of the three most massive traffic bottlenecks the city has seen in the 13 years I've been living here. One of the other two most massive bottlenecks was likely on Sunday, the very next day, when day two Strawberry Festival traffic was joined by cars of the nearly 800 participants in the Ventura Marathon, whose finish line was two and a half blocks 
in the Thompson-Figueroa intersection. And the third instance, I think has already been mentioned here tonight, who can forget the bottleneck there during the Thomas fire? Fortunately, when I was there on Saturday morning, I was on my bicycle. So I saved myself an hour or more of gridlock time. So why am I relating this? We now have empirical evidence that this intersection, indeed this area of the city, cannot handle unusually high traffic loads. That is a critical piece of information because, as previously pointed out by Carol Spector and tonight by Christy Weir, this very intersection is on the city's designated tsunami evacua evacuation route. The applicant's project would add nearly 100 housing units and 100 parking spots smack dab on an emergency evacuation route that even now can't handle heavy traffic loads. I spent the last few years of my working career as the director of operational risk management for a large local firm. Hence, I can't help but bring my professional experience to bear. Having observed the traffic-related events of the past weekend with my own eyes, I believe that the city's finding that the concessions being requested by the applicant do not create a specific adverse impact to safety is seriously flawed. To recap, in my estimation, this project falls short of requirements for three reasons. Failure to satisfy finding number five regarding view obstruction, failure to satisfy finding number six regarding compatibility, and failure to show no detrimental effects to public safety along an emergency evacuation route. For those reasons, I'm unable to support this project in its current form. I, I would like to add, though, there's a significant probability my view might be different if the project were conforming. Thank you for allowing me to state my comments. If I may, I have a, I just wanted to raise a, a legal, an issue of legal concern. The, the analysis with respect to the concessions uh, and the health and safety risk is whether the concession presents a health and safety risk, not whether the density overall presents a healthy, health and safety risk. What I'm hearing and what I've heard from members of the public is that the increased density itself will lead to increased of traffic, not whether the concession for, say, height would cause a health or safety risk. That's the analysis. Please. Um, height is uh, proportional to number of units, which is proportional to number of people, which is proportional to number of cars, correct? Commissioner Bacardi and um, Mr. De La Vega will, will add, add to this. The downtown specific plan does not have a prescribed density to it. So you could have a form-based code that is compliant, that has different unit size makeup, that has the same density as this proposed project, just in a different configuration. As we also elaborated in the staff report, the traffic analysis that the downtown specific plan did was not a site-by-site -site traffic analysis. It was a cumulative impact of the amount of units, square footage of retail, hotel, and things of that nature in this area. Currently, we do not have any supporting documents that would state that this project or this analysis would result in a significant traffic impact uh, that would pose health and safety. And so the city would be very weary of making that type of finding. And just to clarify again, uh, 
yes, the, the height is, is related to the, to the number of units. That's the purpose for the, of the concession. The question is whether granting the concession itself would lead to uh, some health and safety risk, not whether the density necessary for the concession would lead to a health and safety risk. If the density itself could be a, a, a reason to deny the density, it would essentially invalidate the density bonus law entirely. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Abbey. I was wondering if we could bring up uh, a slide from one of the speakers tonight. Um, Eileen Shaw, slide one. Okay. It would be nice to see this picture without the building in the way, but uh, there's the rest of middle and uh, western Anacapa behind the project. As you can see with uh, the Palms building, it has a certain um, horizontal distance to it, and the project itself, uh, because of the way it's built, uh, the 31% could be built in the center, uh, be pushed together. I, I understand why it's not, but it could be built that way. It could still have the same height, same density bonus, same concessions, but it could be built in a, a different configuration that would significantly limit the impact, the visual resource impact of the view of the ocean. Uh, downtown, I, I go back to finding number five, coastal development permit findings for this case. The development, I look at this, I know what's behind that building. The development, I cannot with a straight face make the statement, the development does not significantly abstract public views of the coastline. It's clear in my view, and my, um, my role as a planning commissioner is to make that independent judgment. I'm commissioned to make that independent judgment. All commissioners may not agree with that opinion, but I can state my opinion, make the case, and I think this picture, along with the finding five, in and of itself alone, says that this does significantly obstruct public view of the coastline, views from any public road. This is from Poli. I just don't see how you can refute that. But to me, in my opinion, it's clear evidence that, and the Ventura Local Coastal Plan has higher precedent than the down, the, the density bonus law. So we have two findings at least, findings five and six from the local coastal plan. And if we can't make all of them, then that takes precedence over everything else. I think that's the whole case in a nutshell. And I do want to make the comment that I want to uh, say I appreciate the applicant's work. This is significant work. I agree with uh, a couple of other commissioners that this building in a area of the uh, downtown that was ex anticipating this kind of development would, would be more appropriate. There's been a lot of work and uh, again the 14 very low portable units are important so that it makes it hard for me to make, I've been weighing this very carefully 
but I have to take what's presented to me and I cannot get past findings five and six. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Uh, point of clarification, on this particular illustration which was presented by uh, Ms. Shaw, um, if it were to be at the 54-foot conforming height, it would still obstruct the view, if you will, of the ocean touching the sky. And that, for the Coastal Commission, matters because they're not as concerned about the visibility of how much sky you see, but how, how much of the ocean you see. Is, am I correct in stating it that way? Uh, Thank you, Chair Comden. And if you don't mind letting me elaborate a little more, Please. do you mind, Jean, pulling up the uh, applicant's view study? Uh, and I, again, a great deal of work was put into this exhibit. This rendering does zoom in on uh, the view there. Um, and the applicant's view study... Same, Jean, probably in your backup slides. Um, the view study that was provided was shown from Poli as you would see it in its context of a person walking along and seeing the distance. It isn't in a, a perspective where it's zoomed in on the horizon line. Um, the, the difference here is whether the compliant project and what is being requested with that additional height impacts the view more significantly. And Chair Comden, you're correct for um, the Coastal Commission's perspective, the compliant project was uh, impacting the view horizon of the coastline, um, even at a compliant project. The additional height is not taking any more view of the coastline above. Yes, additional sky view is taken, but it is not of the coastal resource itself. And so from the perspective here is, again, the comparison between what a compliant project is providing in terms of view, public view sheds versus the additional heights that are being proposed here. Um, and again, it is important that we are looking at the views as you would experience them, not in a perspective where they're zoomed in farther into what a person walking down the street would see it at at that actual distance of the horizon. Thank you. Commissioner McCarty. Respectfully, I would like to disagree with that analysis. What's shown here are views from not an eyeball, but a, a lens, a camera lens, which might even be slightly a wide-angle lens. What what the eye sees, for instance, in the upper right-hand photo, view to the proposed project, what we're looking at in this picture is, again, a view from a, from a camera, from a lens. But the eye doesn't focus on that whole view at the same time. What the eye would actually see, I would argue, is much more similar to the, the uh, picture presented by, Ms., uh, by Eileen Shaw. The, that's what the eye sees. We're looking at what a camera sees. There is a difference. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I concur. 
This does appear to be a wide angle. All right. So, would someone like to make a motion in some way? Any other comments or questions? Just, just one, uh, Chair. I think the the very argument and, and or conversation dialogue that's happening right now um, reiterates the subjective nature of of the viewsheds. Uh, while I appreciate um, all of the um, the work done by the community to identify the issues at hand, um, I think the the slide uh, for mentioned that we were looking at earlier from the community um, it that is taken right from the view of you are just looking in that one direction. Now, if you were to turn in another direction, either to the left or to the right, your head, you would experience a different viewshed that would include ocean views. Um. Yeah. It's true, but again, this is taking this project as an individual item. Imagine if there were 10 other side-by-side side along Thompson. Other comments? Someone with Commissioner Zucker. Just to add to the conversation going on, I, you know, agree around the, the challenge of the subjective nature, right? I, I, you know, I agree that actually a human eye is probably more similar to the wide-angle lens, right? I mean, I can see everything to my peripheral vision here versus this. On the other hand, this picture, I think the, the applicant photo was on this side of Poli, on this sidewalk, and the, the, you know, the other photo was on, on the other sidewalk, right? I mean, does the Coastal Act say which side of the sidewalk it has to be? I mean, it, you know, it, it gets to be a point where it's, it's very difficult to make an objective decision, right? Um, you know, and I think, you know, to your, to your point, Chair Comden, there, there is a tipping point, you know, where, where the kind of cumulative view of, of, uh, of the ocean from, from downtown is obstructed by a certain level of development, and it's, and we have almost no guidance of where that tipping point is, and, and so it does make it really challenging, and I think, you know, our, our city attorney is expressing that unless we have something that's really hard and objective, it, it does really expose us to, to legal action and, um, and to, to not being compliant with, with state law, and so um, I think, you know, that, that reiterates the point around subjectivity. Could I ask, could you put the slide up, uh, the vantage point, from the mission? Because I, I want to be very respectful of Father Tom's concerns. Um, no, I think it would be... Yeah, here we are. Okay. So I don't know if this is elevated from, say, the steps, because even though it might, I mean, the, the, the church is elevated unto its own, this looks like it might be somewhat elevated. But as you can see on the illustration to the left, there's a series of trees that are blocking any sky view there, whereas the building would augment that left and right. But um, my concern of them losing view of the ocean, I don't see that happening with this particular project. Any comments on that? Commissioner McCarty? 
I don't think Father oh, uh, Reverend Elowat's concern was the view from the mission. Yeah. And I, I think this photograph emulates perhaps the steps of the mission. I don't know. There's, there's more to the property, and uh, we don't have that vantage point where those two large trees are. But um, Commissioner Farley? Um, having reviewed this at the last meeting, I walked downtown and walked up Poli, and this view, I don't think that you would have any impact of coastal views at all. Um, the building's set back significantly, and that upper floor is set back as well. I think you'd see the trees, which you see currently. Um, so I don't think there's really an impact from the mission in particular. Um, you will see a building, but you do see other buildings. Um, I do agree with the commissioner's um, viewpoint of the photos. They're all different. You're all going to see a different view. And having walked back up and down that street on a sunny day about two weeks ago, your viewpoint changes significantly within five to 10 feet. Um, so I would avoid taking a viewpoint of one picture and saying it's a significant impact, in my personal opinion, and taking a more broad view of what the impact is cumulatively to the community. Um, things that are really important to us up by Grant Park at the, at the cross, significant impact if we had a large structure blocking a view from up there. People come here to take photos from that viewpoint and their wedding pictures and things like that. Um, so I think that that's something that's very significant to the community. Um, but walking along a building frontage, which is currently vacant, up above Palm, where a building would be built in a one-story fashion, would easily block the same view. And so I would hate to say that this building that's going to provide 94 residential units, 13 of which are very low income, when we're protecting a viewpoint of a person standing still for five seconds on a walkway throughout our community, is not to the level of what the Coastal Commission is protecting as significant obstruction. Um, I think significant is an important word. To me, significant means 50%, 75%, not a particular viewpoint in a narrow lens. And so that's my particular opinion about, um, can, excuse me, resolution finding five, where we're talking about the significant obstruction of view. Um, and I don't think that there's a significant difference between a five-story and a six-story building. They're both going to impact that view in the same way. And that's my opinion. Thank you for your comments. I tend to agree, and as much as uh, I indicated before that I feel that this is out of scale in this particular situation, I don't know that the city has a good enough defense if, if a suit were to be brought to defend themselves because of that statement you just said. I, it's very subjective, um, and even though Poli is a wonderful, I mean, it's one of the roads I take all of my out-of-town visitors on because the view is breathtaking, it's not going to last forever. Evil, even single stories to be built at Palm and Poli will obstruct that view, but two stories are allowable, so that'll obliterate that. All right, would someone like to make a motion, please? Commissioner McCarty. I'd like to make a motion to disapprove the staff's recommendation. All right. Do we have a second on that? I'll second if I, that. Okay. If I could chime in. If, if the recommendation is to deny the project, the commission will need to make findings as to why you are denying the project to be uh, included in the record. So, Commissioner McCarty, if there are reasons or augmentations to the findings for denial, um, if you could also include those in your motion. My motion would be to deny the project. Uh, based upon failure to meet findings five and six. 
I'm sorry, Commissioner McCarty, could you elaborate on the reasons that it would fail meetings findings five and six from your per perspective and motion so that we can write that into the finding? Um, because the project as conditioned significantly obstructs views of the ocean and hillsides. And with regard to finding number six, the, uh, the, mass, the massing of the building is incompatible with the characteristics of the surrounding area. Thank you. Very good. Um, Commissioner Abbey, do you concur with your second? Yes. All right, very good. Madam Clerk, would you please take the roll? Oh, I'm sorry, we're doing it electronically now. That motion fails. All right, very good. Would anyone else entertain a, a motion? I'd like to make a motion to approve the major design review coastal development permit and lot line adjustments as conditioned. As conditioned, okay. I'll second. You have a second? Uh, I think Commissioner Farley. I'll second. Get that. All right, any discussion? All right, please vote. That motion passes. All right. Okay, let's take a uh, five-minute recess, please. Yeah, okay.
Those might be. Those actually might be.
I bet you did. All right. So let's move on now to Project 2303 0321 and 0322, the housing element rezoning sites. Ned, are you presenting now? Uh, thank you, Chair Comden. I, I I will be, but I'll be joined with a team this evening. So, Netta Zayer, Interim Community Development Director. I'm joined this evening to my my right, your left, by Rachel Diamond. Rachel Diamond has recently joined us as the Interim Assistant Community Development Director um, uh, with the City of Ventura. So. We welcome her to the team. We're okay. also joined online uh, with our consultants that have been helping us with the draft form-based code overlay um, of Ramey and Associates and uh, online with us tonight and we'll be doing part of the presentation is Simran and Alessandra and they will um, introduce themselves and uh, be doing a portion of this project presentation. Just to set the stage a little before I hand it over to Rachel and the rest of the team, um, back on uh, January uh, of 2022, the city adopted, city council adopted our housing element, and that housing element had a um, substantial amount of implementation items that uh, were intended to be performed with the housing element, as well as meeting our RENA allocation numbers, and uh, Rachel will go further into explanation with this. There were several sites that were identified that needed to be rezoned as part of that effort, and so we are coming back now and um, finishing that process, uh, starting with Planning Commission, then moving on to City Council. So this was discussed uh, about a year and a half ago with the Planning Commission, and now we are coming back and, and um, buttoning up some of these additional items. And with that, I'll turn it over to Rachel to walk us through a little bit more. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much. Good evening, Planning Commissioners, members of the community, and those of you watching at home. I'm Rachel Diamond. I am the um, Interim Assistant Community Development Director, and thank you for having me. Tonight before you, we have a number of items that are grouped together as part of uh, this project. Um, they include two amendments to the zoning regulation, including amendments to the MXD district, as well as the establishment of a new chapter called Residential and Mixed Use Overlay Zone Development Code. In addition to those changes to the zoning regulations, we're also requesting an amendment to the zoning map to rezone seven properties. As Netta, um, as Netta explained earlier, this is all in response to the city's adopted six-cycle housing element, which is still pending HCD certification. But basically, um, what happens is that every eight years, the city is tasked with updating its housing element to show how we can plan for um, an allocation of number of units that the state requires. So the state basically says, you need to plan for X number of units over the next eight year period, and the city identifies sites that can accommodate those units. Um, basically, the city did an analysis of all the sites in the city and identified certain sites that were able to accommodate those uh, units, also commonly called the city's RENA allocation or Regional Housing Needs Assessment Allocation. So you've probably heard that term before. Um, and it's really the driving force of the housing element and how we plan for those next eight years. So basically what the housing element identified is that in order to meet the city's RENA allocation 
plus the legally required buffer that the state has, because we know not every site will be developed in that eight-year period, um, the city did need to rezone a certain number of properties in order to accommodate that reallocation. So there were a number of sites that were identified in that housing element, and that's why we're here today. Basically, the housing element calls for rezoning these sites to accommodate for housing, and then also, um, similar to other locations in the city of Ventura, create a, a form-based code to develop development standards for those um, zone districts so that you have a more detailed development code than our standard zoning districts actually lay out. Um, so like I said, we need to rezone certain housing element sites that are called the rezone sites in the housing element. Um, and what this project does is it creates five form-based code zoning overlay districts that would be applied to the sites rezoned per the housing element. Uh, the current zones, like I said, have limited development regulations. They don't include sufficient design standards to ensure that buildings are high quality and well designed. I think after you know your last item, obviously that's extremely important to this city, and it's important that we have those standards in place to be able to have developers understand what it is that the city truly wants. And as you know, those standards need to be objective per state law and can't be subjective and open-ended. So they are specific requirements versus suggestions. Um, and that gives us more certainty as to what could be built over time. So um, the goal was to create these new overlays so that we can institute objective design standards to achieve the community's design goals and then ultimately lay the foundation for um, the ability to develop the residential units as authorized and, and required by the state. Um, so as I said before, there are a number of requests before you. Um, the first is to amend the MXD district, and that would defer to the overlay development standards by saying, okay, if you're zoned MXD and you have an overlay, we're going to utilize the overlay standards versus the MXD standards, which are very, very minimal, as you can see in the first resolution before you. Um, and the second part of that would be to eliminate low-density residential uses from that mixed-use zone district, um, including single-family and two-family homes. Um, and then the next piece of that would establish that residential and mixed-use overlay zone development code with those new overlay zones, which are the LM, MU3, 4, 5, and 6, and then those development standards. And then amending the zoning map to specifically rezone Johnson Drive um, sites from CPD to MXD with an MU4 overlay, and then the Telegraph Road site rezoned from R17 to R33 with an MU3 overlay. And we'll get into what that means um, as I turn it over to our associates at Ramey and Associates who have been our consultants on this project and the broader update to the city's general plan. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Um, and good evening, Chair Condon and members of the commission. Um, I'm Simran Malhotra, principal at Ramey and Associates. Um, and with me is Alessandra Landin, and she's an associate with our firm as well as the project manager for this project. Um, we are glad to be here today. Next. So as um, as Rachel mentioned, the project creates five form-based zoning overlay districts. And outside of the specific plans, the city's current zoning regulations provide very limited design guidance, resulting in less certainty in terms of what gets built. So the goal of these overlay zones is to provide objective standards for multifamily and mixed-use development that is consistent with uh, what the community's design goals are. Next. <clears throat> 
So brief overview of the process uh, that we have been undergoing over the last um, since last summer when we started the project. Um, after completing the initial research and analysis, uh, we solicited input from a variety of stakeholders. Uh, this included a design workshop, um, a workshop with the design review committee in late August of last year. Um, the direction received was incorporated in the code framework and draft overlay zones, which were then reviewed by city staff before being released for public review in mid-March. Comments were received at another DRC meeting uh, later in March, and then based on that feedback, we prepared a revised hearing draft, which is before you for consideration today. Next slide. So in terms of engagement, um, at the start of the project, as I mentioned, we held meetings with various stakeholders. These included um, getting input from city staff. We reviewed some projects that have pre previously been approved. We talked with design professionals, architects, and developers, housing advocates to get their input on what works and what is lacking in the current regulations. Um, we also received input uh, from the design review committee and the community, as I mentioned earlier. Um, at that meeting, we used live polling for a visual preference survey to receive comments and direction. Um, we had over 70 attendees at this meeting, which lasted, if I remember correctly, about four hours. Um, Alessandra will talk a little bit more about the engagement for the public draft a bit later in the presentation. Next slide. So at that design review uh, committee meeting and um, in this stakeholder input, the key takeaways from all of these were that we identified four major topics that we wanted to make sure we addressed in the overlay, uh, overlay zones. Uh, and these include building design and architecture, neighborhood transitions, open space, as well as parking. A little bit more detail. Um, for building design and architecture, um, the major issues were related to um, reducing the mass or scale of buildings. Um, in the previous project that you all just reviewed, that was clearly one of the issues. And one of the way we've addressed that in these overlay zones is by breaking up larger buildings into distinct sections, sections so that they read as uh, or appear as separate and smaller buildings. Um, other uh, ways to reduce the scale is also by making sure that these buildings have a fine-grained uh, articulation and architectural features. Um, which could include a variety of different elements, um, including trim detail, fenestration, awning, et cetera. There was also um, a lot of discussion about the need for generous setbacks, um, especially as buildings get taller, um, and for these setbacks to be landscaped with, uh, with, with green as well as uh, new trees. Um, there was also some discussion on encouraging the use of traditional materials and stylistic elements. Um, and then, of course, variation in color, which also comes from uh, the use of different materials. In terms of neighborhood transitions, the key issues were related to making sure that buildings stepped down or transitioned to lower density development surrounding them, and as well as 
um, additional setbacks in the in the cases where you have higher heights being permitted next to um, low rise um, low rise zones. Um, for open space, and this is related to um, open space within the development, um, what's required either as common or private open space as to how it was laid out and what were the dimensions that were allowed. This was flexibility regarding this was uh, was mentioned as, um, as something that would be helpful in creating better projects in the city. And then finally, where parking is placed on a site uh, was also important. There's some um, existing requirements that limit where one can place the parking on the site, resulting in um, in building forms that may not be as um, as successful and as uh, feasible as if there was additional flexibility in that case. Next slide. So. To build off, uh, to, to draft the overlay zones, we then st started with several of the existing, uh, the city's existing form-based codes as the basis for the new overlay zones. And then we made a, appropriate modifications to these based on the input I just described. And you'll see later in the presentation, these overlays are organized in the same way as the existing form-based codes um, in order to, um, make it easier for both applicants and city staff to use because they are familiar with that particular organization. So we'll start with um, development standards and then standards by building type, then frontage type standards. And then lastly, there's a section on general site design standards that are applicable to all the overlay zones. And Alessandra will talk about this in a little bit more detail in a minute. Um, there are a few notable, uh, next slide please. There are a few notable differences between these new overlays and the existing form-based codes. Um, Rachel, next slide please. Oh, one back. I apologize, that's the right one. Uh, so there are a few notable differences between the new overlay uh, zones and the existing form-based um, codes in the city. And one of these uh, is that these overlay zones contain both object uh, development standards, as well as clear and objective design standards, as opposed to design guidelines. And this is a requirement per state law. Um, these also address some of the existing challenges that have come up with the current form-based codes regarding parking and open space placement on a site, um, as I described earlier. Um, we've also provided additional flexibility regarding where parking is placed, as well as the placement and design of a private open space. And importantly, um, these address the concerns we have heard from the community. So they provide greater setbacks for higher density building types, um, which allow for wider sidewalks and additional landscaping and street trees along the building frontage. They also include standards to ensure appropriate transitions where higher density development is directly adjacent to lower density uh, neighborhoods. And now Alessandra will describe the five uh, overlays in more detail. Yeah, good evening. As Simran mentioned, I'm going to 
um, walk through the content of the overlay zone standards in a little bit more detail. So we created five overlay zones and they range in density. So we have low moderate density residential, um, the LM, which allows densities of 14 to 20 dwellings per acre. So this um, would accommodate townhomes, duplexes, triplexes, and quadplexes, cottage clusters, and the like. There is a three-story residential and mixed-use overlay at 20 to 30 dwellings per acre, and this corresponds to, again, townhomes and low-scale multifamily buildings, such as courtyard housing. And then we have a four-story residential and mixed-use overlay at 30 to 54 dwellings per acre, a five-story residential and mixed-use overlay at 45 to 65 dwellings per acre, and a six-story residential and mixed-use overlay at 65 to 80 dwellings per acre. And these higher density overlays would accommodate stacked multifamily dwellings and vertical mixed use buildings. Next slide. Uh, I think you can click through these. <laughs> um, so the overlay zones are organized such that the standards layer on top of each other. So if you were developing a project on one of the overlay sites, you would first find out your base zone in the city, which would tell you the allowed uses on the site. Then you would look at which of the four overlay zones you're in, and um, that would provide the allowed building types, um, lot width, density, setbacks, parking, and open space requirements. Next, based on the building type selected, you would look at the building type standards section, which provides design requirements for access and orientation, massing and articulation, colors and materials and such. And then next, you would find the appropriate um, frontage standards um, for whichever building frontage you've selected. And then finally, you would design the site according to the general site design standards. And I'll walk through each of these in a bit more detail on the coming slides. Next slide. There we go. Um, so based on the overlay zone, certain building types are allowed. The building types covered by these overlay zones range from single family homes and row houses up to multi-story stacked dwellings and vertical mixed use buildings with residential units over ground floor retail. Next slide. So each overlay includes general site or building specific development standards, including lot width, density, um, setbacks, parking and open space. And to go into a little bit more detail on how these development standards address the community concerns that someone mentioned, um, we increased setbacks to provide for wider sidewalks and additional privacy and landscaping along frontages. We added in more flexibility in terms of where parking is allowed on a site. So in the existing four maze codes, um, they were only allowed to the, on the rear half of the site, and we've allowed them to the rear and the side of buildings as long as they don't take up more than 30% of the street frontage. We provide required open space by building type, both the total required open space um, per dwelling unit as well as the minimum private open space. And we built in additional flexibility for open space layout and dimensions. So, for example, most building types um, require a minimum of 200 to 300 square feet of total required open space, both common and private. And then they also require a minimum uh, amount of private open space per unit. And then common open space can be accommodated via courtyards, roof decks, and any other areas that meet minimum dimensions and design requirements. And then we also have um, required bulk reductions for the top floor of taller buildings consistent with 
the city's um, other form-based codes. Next slide. So some of the key building type standards included in the overlay zones are um, requirements around the orientation of primary entries towards the street or courtyards and open spaces. Um, we have requirements for building modulation and articulation, but there's flexibility built in on how those standards are met um, by providing a menu of options to choose from. Uh, buildings have to include variations in colors and materials. Um, windows are required to be recessed or include trim. Um, and then while the overlay zones don't prescribe any particular architectural style, we have included um, an architectural integrity guideline. So whichever architectural style is selected, buildings should be designed using elements that are authentic to that architectural style in regards to building form, detailing and features, colors, materials, etc. Next slide. Um, so as I noted pre previously, um, similar to the city's existing form-based codes, these overlays include a section on frontage type standards. So the various residential or commercial frontage types include a porch and yard, um, stoop um, and door yard. These are typical of residential frontages. Um, there's also forecourt, gallery and arcade, lobby and shopfront and awning, which are more um, focused on non-residential non frontage types. Next slide. Um, and then each frontage type includes diagrams and standards for the dimensions, elevation and ground floor height, um, required weather protection, whether that, that be through a porch or recess or awning. Um, there are storefront transparency requirements um, for retail, as well as landscaping requirements for setbacks. Next slide. And then lastly, the overlay zones include site design standards that are general to all the overlays. So we've included um, under neighborhood transitions, and Simran touched on this, um, setbacks and height step downs towards lower density development and um, uh, placement of windows and balconies to ensure privacy. For services and utilities, um, we have requirements for the location and screening of equipment and trash enclosure design and such um, to kind of minimize um, the appearance of those uh, elements of site. Um, under access and circulation, we require smaller block sizes for large sites, um, as well as uh, external connectivity. And then under parking, we have some requirements regarding parking access. So um, examples would include limiting curb cuts and driveways to reduce conflicts between um, vehicles and pedestrians. Um, and we have requirements for screening of surface and structured parking. Next slide. Um, and then continuing on general site design standards, we have open space design standards. So we have minimum dimensions, um, required amenities, landscaping and shading requirements for um, common open space, um, as well as minimum dimensions for private open spaces like balconies. We've included some street to tree standards, including location, size and spacing of street trees. And then we also have a few standards in there for lighting design, including um, height and uh, shielding requirements to reduce glare. Next slide. So um, 
as Simran mentioned, we did initial engagement and then we released the public draft of the residential and mixed use overlays development code on March 13th of this year. On March 29th, we conducted a workshop with the DRC to review this public draft and gather comments. And then for the last few months, we've also been um, receiving and addressing public comments and letters on the public draft. Next slide. So earlier this month, we revised the public draft code um, to this hearing draft that you see, um, and we revised it to address many of the comments and suggestions that we received from the DRC and the public. And some of those included splitting the, um, beforehand we had the MU56 overlay zone, which covered both five and six story um, building types. And instead we split it into two different uh, overlays. So there's now an MU5 story and an MU6 story. Um, and that's just to make things a little bit more clear, easier to understand. Um, we've added row houses as an allowed building type in the higher density overlays. Um, this was a, a great comment because row houses can be an effective transitional housing type for sites, larger sites that are maybe adjacent to lower density residential neighborhoods. We required deeper, deeper window recesses. That was noted as something important to the community. Um, and I apologize here, there is a slight error on the third bullet, um, but it should say that we have allowed interior community spaces to count towards a portion of common, uh, not private, um, open space requirements. So up to 40 square feet per unit of common open space requirements can be provided in an interior community space. Um, we also slightly reduced the private open space requirements and minimum dimensions uh, just for the higher density overlays um, to provide for greater flexibility on how open space can be accommodated and configured within a project site. And then we provided an exception for underground parking to expend, extend more than three feet above grade um, only if it's fully screened or wrapped. And this was based on the DRC's experience on how this has worked for other projects in the city. And then lastly, we applied height transition standards to both the rear and side interior lot lines, again, to um, make sure that any uh, higher density buildings um, that abut uh, lower density building types, either to the rear or to the side, um, have those transitions in place um, in terms of step downs and setbacks. And I will turn it back over to Rachel. Thank you so much, Alessandra and Simran. So what does all of this mean now? Um, basically, what was laid out before you by the consultants was this new residential and mixed use overlay zone development code that establishes new overlay zones, the LM, MU3, MU4, MU5, and MU6 overlay zones. Um, the other amendments to the zoning regulation, as I mentioned earlier, would amend the mixed-use zone district to defer to those overlay development standards as well as eliminate low-density residential uses, which is in line with the housing element. And the third key piece to all this is now applying some of those new standards to specific properties as is required by the housing element. And so I'll walk you through the rezoning request. Um, as I said, the housing element identified two key areas for rezoning. These are called the rezone sites in the housing element. And the first is the Telegraph Road Church site. This site has um, church buildings and other institutional uses like a community space, 
on the site and it's currently zoned R1. So basically today you could build a single family home or maintain those institutional uses on the site. Um, in, order to, um, in order to accommodate more than one unit on the site as is required, a rezoning is required. Um, and so for this um, particular project or property rather, um, the proposed zoning is R33, which is a multifamily residential zone district with the MU3 overlay, which would allow for three-story um, structures there. Um, the other sites are located in the Johnson Corridor. They're currently um, commercially zoned um, in the commercial plan development zone. Um, these basically, these sites are not allowed to develop residential today. Um, so in order to allow for residential, the, um, the zone district that made the most sense was the mixed-use zone district, and I'll explain why. One is you have commercial on the sites today, so it's really important that we not shift to a residential zone district that would create legal nonconformities on the site, um, which would basically render those buildings unable to change unless you demoed them and built to the zoning standards. What um, rezoning to mixed use would allow for these sites is to maintain the existing commercial, add residential, add other residential buildings, completely redevelop with mixed use or redevelop with residential. So there's a number of options on the table for all of these sites that would allow them to, in the future, um, should they choose to move forward with applications, propose development on those sites that would meet these, um, these requirements. As you know, we're only using the MU3 and MU4 overlay as part of these rezoning requests. So what do we do with the rest of these overlays? they sit nicely in our zoning ordinance until we're ready to apply them to sites. So as future sites come into play, this will not be our last housing element, um, we'll look at these as options for future sites and they could be applied anywhere in the city as they, as they make sense. Um, so just diving into the, um, the Johnson corridor, the subject properties that are being proposed to be rezoned are outlined in red. And as you can see, the existing zoning is CPD, and we're proposing to rezone to the mixed-use um, district with the MU4 overlay. As you can see, these sites are, um, like I said, they're commercial in nature. They're surrounded by other commercial properties, and um, this would allow them to add residential should they choose to, um, to redevelop or add development in the future. Um, this gives you a little layout of what the differences are between the existing zoning and the proposed zoning. Like I said, the key difference here is that today there's no residential allowed on these sites. So basically they could build up to six stories of commercial only, um, and the proposed new zoning would allow them to build four stories with 30 to 54 acres per unit, um, or units per acre, sorry. Um, the setbacks do change um, from CPD to the MXD, um, not, um, not significantly, but they do change. And then the parking standards do change as well, allowing a slight reduction in parking requirements for residential units. However, commercial parking requirements would remain the same as they are today in the zoning ordinance. Um, this is the site on Telegraph Drive. Today it's zoned R17. Um, it's surrounded by uh, single-family residential to the east and south, uh, multi-family residential to the west, and then commercial a little further west and across the street is the college. 
Um, the proposed zoning would, uh, would change to R33 with an MU3 overlay, which would accommodate um, the uh, application that has been submitted as a pre-submittal by a developer for the site to build residential units on the site and infill along the street frontages along Telegraph Drive and Baylor. So what does this do to this site? Today, if without rezoning, you can build one single family home plus an accessory dwelling unit on this site. So not much development for such a large site. Uh, with the proposed rezoning, you would be able to build up to 30 dwelling units per acre and three stories. Um, again, the parking does change slightly and the setbacks do change, um, but ultimately as a, a massive site, the single family zoning standards didn't actually really make sense for a site this large. So this will actually um, really help to shape um, any future development on the site. Um, CEQA, this is something we haven't mentioned before, so I'll just dive right in. Um, the 2021 through 2029 housing element CEQA analysis basically said um, that they would do an addendum to the 2005 Ventura General Plan EIR. So that 2005 General Plan EIR was done and analyzed kind of a maximum number of dwelling units within the city and that's how they did the EIR for that larger general plan, which as you know, we're currently working on an update. Um, in order to update the housing element, there was an addendum conducted. They did a study um, basically to update that general plan EIR and included these rezonings as part of that analysis. So that was really key that that happens then because basically these proposed amendments are in line with the recommendations of the housing element and they were analyzed as part of that addendum. That addendum found that there were no substantial changes and no new impacts, and that applies to this project today. So we're basically now tearing off of that in order to um, continue to determine that there's no substantial changes and no new impacts because they were already studied as part of the general plan EIR. So with that, there are a number of recommendations on the table today. We're recommending that the Planning Commission by three resolutions recommend that the City Council adopt a zone text amendment to the MXD chapter, um, a zone text amendment that was established subpart 24F, which is the Residential and Mixed Use Overlay Development Code, and then the zoning map amendments that would rezone 4300 Telegraph Road from R1 to R33 with an MU3 overlay, and rezone the seven subject Johnson corridor sites from commercial plan development zone to the mixed use zone with a mixed use four overlay. So with that, I will open it up to any questions or comments. Thank you so much. Thank you for your presentation. Commissioner's question for staff. Uh, Commissioner McCarty. Rachel, nice to meet you and thank you for your presentation. Um, Simran and Alessandra, thank you also for your presentation from the Ramey perspective. I appreciate it. Um, first, I'd, I'd like to get a clarification with regard to both the staff report and a comment you made, Rachel. And the staff report states that cities are required to provide a buffer of approximately 20% of total new units in order to ensure the ability to construct the required units. So set me straight. So. What I understand from the Housing Element Site Inventory Guidebook, published by the Housing and Community Development of the state in uh, June 2020, the, um, the buffer is a recommended buffer and not a requirement. Has that changed since 2020? 
Well, it's an interesting question. So um, while it's considered a recommendation, um, HCD has across the board required that all cities provide that buffer. Cities that haven't have had comments back to them when they've submitted the house, their housing elements to the state for certification that they need to have that buffer. And in our conversations with the state, they've required that 15 to 20% buffer. So it may be a recommendation on paper, but in reality, it is absolutely required by the state. Okay, thank you. Thank you for pointing that out, though. It is, there is a, a difference there, so I'm glad right. you corrected it. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> with, within the past day or two, a letter to the Planning Commission was received from the law firm of Mullen and Hensel, attorneys at law, regarding uh, a client that they have uh, who owns one of the sites on, on Johnson Drive. And the concern was... Um, being able to be, being able to proceed with planned construction there uh, in light of the new overlay zones. So, number one, maybe maybe this is a question for council. Has, has that letter? Have you had a chance to review that letter yet? Do you I mind have, if I have not? No. Yeah. Do you mind if I chime in here? Thank you, Commissioner McCarty. I have. Uh, before that letter, um, met with them, and we have met with that. Uh, developer, applicant, property owner several times. Um, and they were actually part of the process in, in reviewing and creating the overlays and uh, identifying as a site. So um, their primary concern, and, and they understand what the city is doing and have no objections to it, they just want to make sure that their rights are protected in the sense that if they do not build the threshold of affordability that we've identified in the housing element, and they are not required to, it's an exercise that we go through to identify sites and the, uh, the depth of affordability, that they, if they came in with a project that didn't build 100% affordable, that they would in no way be in violation. And um, the truth of the matter is they wouldn't be in violation. And we've had those discussions, but again, again they wanted to submit that letter just to safeguard their position there. Okay. So I suspected that was the answer, that they would not be in violation. However, does that change our housing element numbers? We submitted numbers based on one assumption, and the client is coming back and saying that assumption is not correct. So, so we'll need to amend our housing element numbers, correct? So what would happen if, uh, if a project was before you that was requesting a lower number of dwelling units than was outlined in the housing element and it was one of the sites in the site's inventory? State law basically requires that the city, it's incumbent on the city to make up for that um, no net loss, right? They want to make sure that if the housing element says 100 units and someone is recommend, or requesting 80, that the city find those 20 units elsewhere. So there are a number of projects that were not included in the site's inventory that could potentially be utilized, as well as a, a slew of other sites that the city could utilize to add to the site's inventory. And it's fairly common that those um, that site's inventory gets adjusted over that eight-year period. So it's a good thing we just recommended approval of the density bonus on 211 Thompson, huh? This... Uh, Yes. Um, uh, Commissioner McCarty, this is going to be an exercise that staff is going to have to be doing pretty much consistently now moving forward given new housing element laws. Okay, one more question. Um, in the uh, Ramey and Associates presentation to the, to the DRC in March, there was um, a slide which stated 
establish objective standards for housing development by the end of 2022, considering the use of form-based codes as a standard zoning district overla or overlay to allow the infill strategy to apply to lands without the need for costly and time-consuming specific plans or special development codes. So, how, so essentially this is saying the need for the overlay zones is to obviate the need for costly and time-consuming specific plans. However, for parts of the city, costly, time-consuming, and wonderfully effective and appropriate specific plans have already been developed. So a question from the public at the March meeting was, should the housing overlay zones that are being proposed, should they not be used on existing specific plans or existing overlay zones? Do you consider that a relevant and valid observation? And if not, why not? So Commissioner McCarty, the intent, as you're seeing in the resolution, is they be applied to these housing element sites now. They're not intended to be applied to or supersede other specific plan areas. Um, as you're very well aware, since you sit on the General Plan Advisory Committee, that we are going through a general plan um, uh, update. Uh, as Rachel mentioned, these will sit in our zoning ordinance as the general plan update process goes and goes forward and we identify new land use designations, say in areas maybe that didn't have housing or mixed use before, we can at the same time apply these development standards to again provide development standards at the same time that we're changing a land use designation. As state law has changed over the years, if there's inconsistencies between your general plan and your zoning district from the state's perspective, if your new general plan designation allows housing, you can build housing. And to safeguard the city that when we do make that action, we will have something in our code that can be simultaneously applied. Okay, great, thank you. Excellent observations. Commissioner Zucker. Thank you, Chair. Um, two, two main questions here, um, and, but first just wanna thank staff and, and Ramey for all the great work that went into this. I mean, clearly very deliberate and thoughtful and, and some, some good public input that was incorporated. Um, uh, one of my questions around, uh, you know, as, as we kind of become more conscious of, you know, need for environmental action and, you know, and kind of climate resilience, um, you know, any, any thought to maybe, maybe increasing some of the, the kind of environmental requirements in, in some of these, um, these codes like around, say, water efficient landscaping or bike parking or, you know, EV charging or anything like that? So um, it, it's definitely something that already would apply to these sites because a lot of those provisions are in the building regulations um, or in other codes that are used um, at the time during plan check and for building permit. But there are some development standards in here that do play into energy efficiency like orientation of buildings and windows and other things that can lend themselves to um, more environmentally friendly structures. Um, and that's certainly something that we're continuing to work on. Um, we also have um, a sustainability plan that's in the works um, that is in its final stages. And upon implementation of that, there'll be additional standards that come into play um, related to a green building. Great, great, looking forward to that. 
Um, second question is a little more of a thorny one. I, I think this came up when we were originally kind of passing the housing element rezone sites uh, around kind of freeway proximity of, of housing. And, you know, there's a, there's a pretty immense body of scientific literature around the, the health impacts of, you know, folks living next to freeways within like a 500 foot, you know, uh, zone or whatever. And we talked a little bit about it and, you know, said, let's do the housing, you know, housing element sites now. And, and when we actually get to the rezoning, we can kind of talk about that and, um, you know, wanted to, to talk about it now. I mean, I know it's certainly challenging, right, because we've got these certain sites and you've got a certain, you know, amount of units that we, we need to hit. Um, but I'd love to see if there's ways that we can, you know, buffer or mitigate those those health impacts as, as much as possible, um, you know, and and maybe that could be, yeah, around kind of orientation of, of uh, yeah, commercial residential or, or maybe increasing the, the density or height in, you know, in part of it to set it back a little bit from the freeway. I mean, any, um, any thoughts from staff and whether there may be any possibility around that? I think the key thing, you know, when a project comes in and it is in close proximity to a freeway is um, the work that staff does with the developer to um, try to mitigate those issues. Also, when there are specific um, environmental studies that can be brought up as well. There aren't specific regulations related to that and distance from the freeway in, in these regulations. Um, but certainly, you know, there's a number of ways that developers could orient buildings away from the freeway. And generally, because of that area on Johnson, they would be oriented, you know, towards Johnson or, um, you know, away from the not as close freeway as it seems from the map, frankly. Um, did you want to add to that, Mary? But that's certainly something that, you know, I think with the sustainability plan, we could look into more and add some um, additional provisions in the future to try to address that. And through the general plan, you know, with the general plan update, we can look at policies and, and more discussion. I know there's been um, a lot of conversation about proximity of residential to even heavy industrial and, and other things of that nature that would be impactful to residential development. So those are all being discussed and can be um, crafted in policies and kind of direction that the general plan will, will guide future development. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I mean I know in some ways it's a little bit of a, you know, that when we say, oh, this is what we're zoning for low income, you know, it's maybe it's kind of play this arena game that cities play with the state where it's like not really where, you know, this area is going to be 100% low income, but you're kind of meeting the arena requirements by saying it's a certain amount of density units. But it is a, it is maybe not a, not a great <laughs> look or path to be like, let's stick all our low income housing next to the freeway, right? So. Yeah. The, the Telegraph Church site um, as Rachel mentioned, does have an application in with the city right now for a 100% affordable housing project there. Um, People Self-Help Housing is working on a project there. Super exciting. I mean, it, you know, I think some of this, you know, there's a God's backyard or, you know, these types of projects. I mean, it, it's huge potential for creating affordable housing and that Telegraph Quarter is a great, great location for affordable housing. So, Yeah, I agree with you. Um, there are some structures that have been built in Oxnard that seem they are right on the freeway, and I want to see if we can avoid that in our planning, especially in Johnson area. Um, uh, Commissioner Abbey? Yeah, uh, yes, I have four questions. I wanted to immediately piggyback uh, with Commissioner Zucker on the freeway adjacency issue for residential. Um, does the APCD 
Air Pollution Control District or any other legal authority within the county uh, specify what is a safe distance? Uh, couldn't there be a minimum footage uh, setback of the, re the residential component? Perhaps parking could be, or office space, or commercial, because people aren't living there 24 hours a day, but the residential, you went when I'm breathing in freeway exhaust constantly. Um, could that be established, and could that be done before we have to approve this? Especially two or three zones, AP, uh, parcel, parcel numbers that were on Johnson Drive, two of them very close to the freeway, and another one probably within 250 feet as well. Yeah, there is the site that we did receive the letter on that is adjacent to the freeway. It's the cluster of, of three um, parcels there that is looking to build residential. They have come in with a pre-application for um, uh, development on that, and they are looking to put kind of their parking fields as the buffer between um, the residential buildings themselves as well as the um, freeway. I think those are cases, as, as Rachel, Rachel mentioned, was when the development applications come in and we look at kind of environmental air quality kind of impacts of that project and existing conditions that we can look at. It can be challenging to pick a specific number and kind of a hard, fast um, objective design standard based off that. It's something that we can fold in as we look at these projects and review them for um, environmental compliance and site-specific designing. Okay, I, I hear the perspective that you're giving, and I appreciate that. It just seems logically that it might be important to figure out what would be a minimum distance prior to approving it, because if you put it on the books, and then the <laughs> these are... Um, uh, Overlay zones are templates that can be replicated throughout the city once we establish these. So right now, we're trying to apply them to um, housing, affordable housing, the, the housing element to those sites on Johnson Drive. But if those provisions aren't in place and, and then we let them loose and there's other projects around the city, you know, we get the issue of precedence and is it safe, and so I'm just expressing an opinion and putting that out there. I'm not trying to uh, create a, any problem. Um, I had a, so three other questions. Um, could you put, put up uh, the consultants or the slide page 62 that talked about adjacency step backs? It had a diagram, yeah, yeah. Now, you had it on there for like a half a second, but uh, go on right now. Is it the layering slide? Uh, 62. There we go, page 62. Okay, so it gives high transitions, and it has uh, a couple of homes on the left. And then there's a distance A, a minimum interior setback, and of course, we would have to see does the minimum interior setback A get larger for you know going up from LM zone to MU3 to MU4 to MU5 to MU6? Does, does A get larger for each of those uh, more dense uh, 
categories. Simran or Alessandra, do either of you want to chime in on that? Go ahead, Alessandra. Yeah, the, I believe, and I have to look at, I'll go find these exact code section. Um, the setback doesn't change, but the building height changes based on, um, and, and those step backs change based on the height. Okay, so if there, so, if, if A, the minimum interior setback is the same for low, moderate density residential versus three-story mixed use, four-story, five, six, what is A? What's the, what's the number assigned to the minimum interior setback if it's the same? Oh, sorry. Okay, let me find that really quickly. <laughs> If I may, while Alessandra is uh, looking that up, so at the ground floor, at the ground level, the setback for the zone is what governs, and then the, the building, camera. the building uh, next to it, the taller building, it starts to step back after the third floor by 15 feet every That's every two my, floors. I'm sorry, yes. that wasn't my question. Uh, the the A, the mm -hmm. minimum. Let the land setback, not the step back, I understand the step back, but the setback from the property line. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, so for example, um, this at the, for the six story multifamily and mixed use, um, so if in, in that particular situation where there's no alley, um, the rear setback, the minimum rear setback abutting a single family residential property is 20 feet. And that remains consistent across the board. Okay, so with no alley, regardless if it's uh, LM uh, adjacent to a single family residential versus six story, uh, the value A for minimum interior setback is 20 feet regardless? Um, is that what I'm hearing? Feet, if it's so in the LM, it's, it's 15, 15 feet, feet minimum. In all the other districts, others, oh, I think it's 20. They were both saying the same thing. Yeah. Okay, and then I, I hear the answer. Thank you. Um, then uh, it says starting from the third floor up. So the diag the picture doesn't seem to match the wording. Starting from so is, does it start at the third floor or start above the third floor where there's a step back? The picture would indicate you can have three stories and then beginning, starting with the fourth floor, uh, you have to step the fourth, the next two floors uh, back together 15 feet. So is the verbiage or the diagram accurate? It should be above the third floor. Starting above the third floor. So the graphic is accurate that above the third floor, it then steps back that 15 feet for every two additional. Okay. Uh, I would like to hear what other commissioners think. I have concerns with both the minimum setback, especially as you have higher heights for those buildings. And then again, if you had 20 feet and you had three stories directly behind you, 
that would be interesting. Uh, it'd be, um, I'll leave my comment at that. Thank you, for, uh, let's see. I did wanna go on to a couple other questions. Um, actually, just one more. How is the DBL, the density bonus law, handled? So let's, let's say for hypothetical that on Johnson Drive, we zone M MU4 for the, the projects. Um, now, it's been said, I've heard uh, uh, someone at General the GPAC say that just by the fact that we have the affordable housing ordinance that we recently approved, the AHO, um, just by the mere existence of the AHO, you already qualify for a concession. You qualify for density bonus. Is that correct? So regardless of the city's um, uh, regulations, state law basically says that if you're building a 100% affordable housing project, you automatically can ask for up to three stories in addition to the maximum allowable height on the site, and you get unlimited number of dwelling units. The applicants, however, have been working with the city. They, um, they submitted a pre-application uh, for this project, also in compliance with state law, prior to any of this um, obviously being approved, so, uh, or even um, submitted to be applied for. So they're not required to comply with these standards. That being said, they, they want to comply as best as possible with the standards that are being put into play because um, they do work with their project and frankly, they're looking to build a, um, you know, a, a, I think it's 57, 100% affordable housing units and fill on the site three stories. So the MU3 overlay works well for them. So, um, and Rachel's speaking specifically to the Telegraph Church site on that one. Um, to answer your other question, Commissioner Abbey, uh, the inclusionary housing ordinance that was adopted by city council, um, that does allow them to use state density bonus law and by the amount of affordable units that would be provided as a requirement from the city, they would be eligible to use the parking standards as well as the amount of concessions outlined in state density bonus law for that. So yes, um, depending on how many of those affordable units they do and they can go above city's requirements and build even deeper affordable units or more affordable units that can provide them additional concessions. I just want to be clear, and I think I am uh, understanding it clearly. We could say we want to see four, and we could easily have seven stories. I think that's a, for a 100% affordable project. Right. I think that that would be a stretch to say that based on the city's inclusionary housing requirement that you would go from a four to seven story right. building. But you could easily go from four to five because just by the IHO inclusionary housing ordinance, you practically already qualify for a concession, which would allow you to go another floor, right? That, that is possible. Okay. I just want that to be clear. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. <clears throat> Commissioner Farley. Thank you. Um, I appreciate the objective nature of your code um, and the proposal. There's one or two places where I just question whether or not maybe more objectivity might be appropriate. Um, on page 43, D, Architectural Guidelines, um, it refers to 
architectural integrity, um, not prescribing particular architectural styles, which I think is fine, um, but then it leaves it open to discretion on how do you meet those standards. Um, and I would suggest either referring to a specific guideline or a methodology for making that determination um, because everyone has opinions about that. Yes, um, and I, I can let Simran and, and Alejandra jump in. Jump in. We, we understand that too. Um, this was something that came out of uh, public comment as well as discussions with DRC about architectural integrity and character that when you are picking an architectural style that you say true to that style in terms of the detailing, articulation, fenestration, um, roof pitch, those type of balcony detailing um, that would lend itself to that architectural style. Um, and, and Alessandra and Simran, correct me if I'm wrong, we left it um, a bit vaguer because it is a little more subjective in nature. Do either of you want to chime in on that? Um, sure, I can start and Alessandra, uh, please feel free to add. Um, Yes, we kept the statement in as a guideline and not as an objective standard because we recognize that for it to be objective, we would need to go into a lot of detail about what each architectural style uh, would entail and um, be very specific about each of the requirements, whether it be roof, um, for example, roof style, roof materials, building materials, building form, uh, and detailing, etc. Um, so instead, we we kept kept the intent in here as a guideline, uh, and as uh, both Rachel and Netta have mentioned, as they work with applicants, um, they can um, uh, encourage them to stay authentic to the architectural style that they uh, that they identify for their project. The intention here was as, as you go through the other objective standards and you go through the menu of criteria of, of layering, that we can point to this guideline and say, as you're picking those menu items, stay authentic to the architectural style you, you select. So we're not going to prescribe the architectural style, but we're going to say, as you pick through those menu options, if you're doing craftsmen, pick if you're, you're saying, hey, I'm gonna add awnings or I'm gonna add fenestration, that you pick one that's true to a craftsman style. So the intention here is that uh, we would use it as kind of a basis or a guideline for the menu options they are selecting. My only concern, I guess, at this point would be that I've seen projects that attempt to do this and they do it very cheaply. Um, and they add facades or they add details which are not, in my opinion, true to a style. Um, and so my hesitation is that this leaves it open and future staff five, ten years down the road um, don't have guidance to that. So I would just suggest in the future if we ever tighten this up to maybe link it to something that is more objective, at least in some basic criteria. Maybe not everything, but more basic criteria. Understand. And, and we can look at that closer. It is, I um, want to manage expectation, that is going to be very challenging to do as you start to, it's, it is more simplistic in a community like Santa Barbara where they have one architectural style that they select so you can really elaborate very extensively. When you do start getting into a variety of architectural styles, 
you will get into a very lengthy type of objective standards if you're going to go into that kind of level of detail which each style. But definitely something we can look at as we use, see how we can bolster or improve this. Again, these are living documents we can continue to refine as we apply and see what, what may be working or what needs refinement as we move forward. Thank you. And then I just had another question um, on Johnson Drive specifically. Um, there are lots that surround the proposed rezone lots. Were there any communications with those property owners about being interested in doing the same thing? I had a few people ask me questions about which particular lots and why others weren't chosen. Do you have any idea that those might be the next set of rezones that we would be seeing? The, the selection of these lots was that these, these property owners came forward and expressed interest for them, um, uh, which is why we selected them. Um, and the question of why we didn't select more, discuss more, we were able to meet our arena and our buffer with these lots. That doesn't mean that future ones can't happen and or discussion of that already is happening with the general plan update of looking at that corridor and what should happen along Johnson Corridor. This was really specifically to meet these, these arena site numbers. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Uh, Commissioner Abbey. Um, I had, just had a couple of questions before we hear from the public, and I, we probably should hear from the public soon. Um, just as in the previous agenda item, uh, there was a brief discussion about heights, and that was a little bit slippery, uh, how we got to heights. I very much appreciate in, the, um, in these overlays that you have densities laid out, 14 to 20, 20 to 30, 30 to 54, 45 to 65, 65 to 80. Uh, that's good. Um, could there be uh, ranges for heights as well? Versus just the maximum height? Um, well, I would imagine, like for example, mixed use three for density has 20 to 30 dwelling units per acre. Could there, so I would assume 20 is a minimum and 30 is a maximum. So I guess I'm asking, could there be a minimum to maximum range on heights, even if they happen to overlap from category to category? So I believe there's each of them has a maximum height, and they, they can build lower than the maximum height that's allowed. Oh, so what are the maximum heights for each of the categories? Uh, so for instance, in the mixed-use three, Okay. Um, and we also included stories and feet, so there isn't that confusion as there was as you were talking about the previous project. Oh, um, so for mixed use three, it's three stories and 40 feet. Okay, and what about uh, low, low moderate LM? Um, the, mm -hmm. the low moderate is uh, two and a half stories and 28 feet, which is consistent with um, other. I believe this, the, the city's existing heights for kind of more single family building types. Okay, and for four story? Um, for four story, it is? 50 feet. Okay. Yeah, four, four stories and 50 feet. And five, five story? Yeah, for five story, it's... Um, it's 60 feet. It's, okay. And yep. mixed so it's five six. stories and 60 feet. And then six stories is, uh, sorry, the six story overlay is six stories and um, 70 feet. Okay. Thank you for that information. Uh, let's see. 
I was just wondering, the, what is the timing on the GPAC updates? Uh, are we far from receiving those uh, from GPAC? I think November 6, GPAC has its next meeting and they'll be looking at, is it the preferred, preferred uh, recommendations? Citywide, not sure. And then how long can we expect before Planning Commission will receive those recommendations for consideration? So on um, June 6th, the GPAC will be meeting to talk about um, kind of the results of their discussions over the last five or six meetings where they've talked about it. Um, we are also going to talk about public engagement and what happens between that GPAC meeting and Planning Commission. Um, we are um, hopeful or targeting that by end of summer or early fall that it would go to Planning Commission and then subsequently to City Council. Okay. Well, there might be some elements where there's some overlap between the two. All right, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, on the uh, Telegraph Road, what's the acreage on that? Give me just a moment while I pull that up. Feels like it's two and a half, maybe three. I walked it today. Just wanted to get a sense. They're, it's 2.5. 2.5. So they're under. Acres. Right. So they're under occupying that space if they're proposing less than 60 units because the overlay stipulates 30 units per acre, correct? That's correct, and there are a number of buildings that will remain on site as well. Okay, so I think Commissioner Abbey might have had a concern about height there, but I, I think it might be more spacious than we imagine at two and a half acres. Yeah, all right, any other questions for staff? Okay, with that, um, let's open the public meeting. Madam Clerk, do we have any speakers? Chair Condon, we have seven public speakers. Okay, very good. Our first speaker is Christy Weir, followed by Craig Banks. the writing the specific plans um, I believe we should be real careful uh, um, on certain ways of matching these overlays to all the specific plans we're using and one area that's going to sound super small but it isn't um, is the measurement on recessed windows in all of our specific plans you have to recess them at least three inches um, in this, the last time I read all 400 pages or whatever it was, it was two, and I don't know why that got changed. Um, the reason that's a big deal is because if you've noticed Encinal in Maine, beautiful building, those are recessed like six inches. It makes a building look way more substantial and interesting um, when you have big recessed. recessed um, and the ones on across from Ventura High School, one is a fairly attractive building and one is not. One of the big differences is the recess. The one, the one that's like a little bit less attractive has no recess in the windows. It just really adds a lot. So a very simple change um, that would make a huge difference all over town would be to fix that. Um, make it three inches, at least four would be even better. Um, and then also, the, um, I'm a little concerned about the common open space being reduced um, in this new overlay. 
we need more common op open space, not less. And then this, I don't know if I could seriously request this, but um, it sounds like the Johnson rezoning is to satisfy the RENA buffer requirement, which I don't think the state really can require because it's not part of the law. I mean, they can threaten and, and they can, they can you know, encourage, but I don't think they can require it since it's not the written law. But um, that, cal that, that, cal that intersection is horrible. The freeway on-ramp and off-ramp are there, horrible. Um, if we add density there, it's going to make that worse because all these new people are going to be driving there every day to go to the collection. Sorry, but that's where they're going to shop. Um, and we could use the rezone, since it's not absolutely required, as a bargaining chip <laughs> um, for Caltrans to fix that. I know cities have done this. For instance, Springville um, in Camarillo, you tell Caltrans, we, you know, we need this fixed before we rezone or before we give any building permits for these new buildings. Um, it's going to be a nightmare if that stays the same and we upzone a lot of these properties. That's it. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Ware. Our next speaker is Craig Banks, followed by William. And I apologize, I'm not sure if it's Rahalo or Rahala. Um, it sickens me to address you. I am the expert at this location on Telegraph. My residence is 40 feet from the subject property. It's been owned since 1959. There used to be a great walnut orchard next to it. Since that time, there's been five very tall apartment buildings which overlook my yard and desecrated any privacy I had. Um, the culture, we talk about culture and character of this place. I've seen it transition. As a mathematician, you look at these idiot MBA consultants that use factors and MU codes and parking spaces per person. Well, I see where they have four or five families in one unit. I see the Latinos spread with the SWAT teams on almost a monthly basis. I see them move the behavioral health unit and place a parking, a bus parking by the front door so that the mentally ill, we call them homeless, they're mentally ill. They go get their stipend, they go to the liquor store. I get 20 airline bottles a month in my front door. And then they walk to the park, which the first responders and the police refer to as parolee park. Every day, twice a day, I see the grocery cart, uh, the uh, stolen shopping carts with the person's belongings go up to the church and camp there every night and then go back down to the park. I've had a person come down my driveway and drove into my house after drinking a fifth of vodka, moving the front door seven inches into the structure, collapsing my roof because he wanted to go to the drug dealer on the other side of my fence in the first apartment building. And you want to put in 54 more units? It's not 54 times 2.5 people per unit. Screw that statistic. It's lies with, this is like watching a Carl's Jr. commercial with busty bikini girls 
And then you go to the Carl's Jr. on Thompson and you see the urine-soaked homeless there with their, vote, their vouchers from the city. It, it's insanity. It's magical thinking. And you're blighting my neighborhood. You're blighting my property. I'm the son of an in, immigrant that came over here from Glasgow and worked for 37 years to build that property. And you think, it's exciting. We can meet our low-income goals. We're going to satisfy the state thing. Not one of you is going to be adjacent to this property change. You are irresponsible, immoral. Why haven't you considered on Alondo? Why didn't you do the keys? Thank you, sir. Appreciate your comments. Our next speaker is William, followed by Lisa. Hi, I'm William Rajala, and I was actually coming to discuss the proposed plan on the property, but now I realize that this is just a rezoning the discussion. However, I do believe that the proposed project does play a little role, not just a little role, in the rezoning decision. So there is an approximately 40 to 50 unit apartment complex just adjacent to this proposed property on Telegraph. Um, it's two stories. There's a lot of traffic overflow because there's not enough parking there. Traveling on Baylor Road is, Baylor Drive can be pretty dicey um, because it's just lined on both sides. Um, there is a planned 94 unit uh, apartment complex across Telegraph at, Victoria, at Ventura College for student housing, which has for 300 to 320 beds. So that's gonna bring a lot of density literally across the street. Now you're gonna add in a 57 unit uh, apartment complex right in the midst of that, which will again bring in 150, maybe 200 people. That's just a lot of people in that congested area. And I think it's just gonna cause more problems with safety. Um, I realize that this is a request for an MU3 zoning, uh, but there are no other three-story buildings in that neighborhood. I might have heard incorrectly, but since this is a low-income housing project plan, um, the MU3 concept does not need to be followed through that you can choose more than three stories, if I, if I heard that correctly. So this could be a four-story, five-story, six-story because it's gonna be all um, low-income housing. The people who live right behind that complex could have a very tall building right in their backyard. That's distressing to me. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Our next speaker is Lisa Rajala, followed by Barbara Castell. Hi, good evening. Um, our property abuts the existing parking lot at the church, and the concern for me is congestion and limited parking. Will there be any kind of underground parking in addition to the plan lot? issuing parking permits for residents, putting up no parking signs on street sweeping days. The street is already packed. 
and filthy as the sweeper cannot do its job. Um, are you building a noise blocking wall between the lot and our backyards? We're literally, that's our backyard. Uh, also, there are plans for additional uh, building on Telegraph Road. The added congestion is going to be, uh, going to dramatically decrease the quality of life in this residential area. Uh, the street is already unsafe. It's packed with cars on both sides and there's a curve right where the proposed driveway is going to be for this new building. So that's about it. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Our next speaker is Barbara Castell, followed by Michelle Laville. Laville? We switched on you. Sorry. Lee? We skipped Lisa. We skipped. I'm her. I'm Lisa. Oh, okay. Sorry. So our next speaker is Michelle. Thank you. Hello, I'm Michelle Annette Levier. I'm the new Classic Auto Museum Curator at Crown Classics and Museum. Um, I'm only here because I saw a sign in front of our business a couple days ago saying that something was going on and I came here to find out what it was. Um, could you specifically speak to what will happen at the old Toys R Us building where we are lo located now, or is that too specific for this discussion? We usually don't answer in this way, but when, when it comes back to the commission, we can ask staff to give us any updates that they might have on that parcel. But right now, this is general overlays for these areas, not parcel specific. Could I just ask if this is, if my building is included in one of those parcels. Can we get back to you after we close the public hearing? Thank you. Okay, thank you. And our final speaker is Amy uh, Sherry. Amy, I've made you a panelist. You have control over your mic and camera. I think I'm unmuted. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Hi, um, thank you commissioners for um, enduring this long evening um, and I appreciate all your work. Um, I'd like to start by thanking the development department for naming the different uses by their corresponding stories. Um, something we've been asking for, low moderate, MU3 equals three stories, MU4, four stories, MU5. Um, thank you. Um, uh, Regarding the overlays, I just kind of want to echo, I think Christy said it, um, they should not be applied on any existing specific plans or corridor plans. Um, and I mentioned this because it, it says uh, the overlay development code, LM and MU overlays provide development and design standards that replace and or in addition to those prescribed in this chapter for the MXD zone. So replace or in addition to, I think could be a little more clarified. Um, and if there's an existing uh, plan, that it not be overridden. Um, do, 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 density one. Uh, we could have more certainty in the downtown uh, specific Form-based codes, if you provided a maximum density, the ambiguity of the form-based codes is the opposite of standards are meant to do. 
Um, it would be helpful to provide clarity of what is allowed. Um, that's what a lot of the problems we're seeing. Um, all of these overlays have density with the exception of the downtown specific plan area or residential dwelling units for each shall, shall within, oops, the plan shall apply. Um, so there was that. Two, clarify live work parking. Is it, if it's based on the general use type, does that mean the parking has to be open space? And if it's provided in a private garage, that should be in addition to the space for the general use type. Does that make sense? Um, since the parking is only required for the general use type and not the residential portion, um, it shouldn't be a private garage. Three, do not approve the section that says attic space can have 75% living space and not be counted as a floor. That would be um, item F, two, attics. Attics may be occupied and not count as a story when applying the height limits of the ap applicable zone. <coughs> Occupiable attic space shall not exceed 75% of the gr ground floor footprint. That just kind of seems <coughs> ridiculous, especially if you have areas with a, you know, 0.25% third floor, 0.45. Thank you, Ms. Sherry. Your Thank time you. has expired. Thank you. Okay. Madam Clerk, do we have any other speakers? Chair Condon, that concludes our public speakers. Very good. Thank you. I will close the public hearing and ask staff if we could address Michelle's particular question. Um, so I'm happy to, a couple of points. There were specific questions raised about the telegraph project itself. We're happy to connect with um, those residents that came out to talk about the specifics of the project. It wasn't agendized and noticed and the project is not ready to be heard at this evening and not the nature of this item, but we can connect them with the project planner and, and make sure that we're including them in discussion. So for those members who did come to speak on the telegraph site, if you did not put your contact information on your speaker card, if you don't mind staying after and providing it for us, then we could reach out to you. Um, same goes for the um, Toys R Us site. We've had many conversations with the property owner there um, who does have interest in pursuing a housing project there. Um, there's no active application at this time, but we can connect further about that. Okay. So Michelle, make sure you're contact information and those of you interested in the telegraph make sure we have the information we can follow up on all right very good thank you uh commissioner abby let's kick things off here um while the question is fresh in our mind there were several speakers who were interested about telegraph road uh, so i wanted staff to uh, be responsive to them in terms of what are the implications if we approve the staff recommendation regarding the mixed-use three designation at Telegraph. If we do that tonight, does that lock in the objective design standards that the eventual project, when applied for, have to comply with? First, the item will go before the city council, since this is legislative in nature. So the city council would need to um, adopt their ordinance to rezone on two readings. Um, and then 30 days later, the zoning would be in effect. 
and would allow for, as you said, a, th a three-story building um, as the base. And there is the potential that um, with a 100% affordable housing project that you could add stories. The proposed project, as, as has been submitted, is a three-story project. Yeah, so, so what uh, the Planning Commission does with this item tonight, specifically in relationship to Telegraph Road, is important because if City Council then approves Planning Commission's recommendation based on staff's recommendation, then the project, when applied for, will have to comply with those objective design standards, correct? Because this specific project came in with a pre-application prior to these standards being put into place, um, they don't apply technically. That being said, as I said earlier, the developer is interested in complying as much as possible with the standards. But because they've locked in their, um, their allowable development prior to that in compliance with state law, they're not legally obligated to meet every single one. Okay, I'll have additional questions, but that's it for now, thank you. All right, Commissioner McCarty. As usual, I have numerous comments and questions each of which is tied to a page and paragraph in the document titled Tract Changes Overlay. If that could be brought up. Brought up on the screen? What's that? Brought up on the screen? Uh, probably the easiest. So, so uh, or, well, or should I just go ahead? I would just go ahead in the future if you let us know we can prepare. Okay, okay. I, I thought since it was part of the package, it might be handy. It's techno technology what? issues, but okay. we can be prepared in the future. Okay, um, this refers to what Amy Cherry just uh, mentioned, page three, paragraph F2, regarding attics. Um, the, f uh, the overlay proposal says attic space may be occupied and shall... And, and not count as a story. So this is, this as Ms. Cherry suggested, this is counterintuitive to me also. If there's a, an attic space that is occupied, there must be a good reason why it's not counted as a story. This is something that's actually in the existing zoning ordinance that applies <laughs> to all properties within the city. Um, so it was repeated here. Um, this is fairly common in a, in a number of regulations to allow for attic space to be utilized for livable space. Um, in the past, it's kind of um, evolved because people have just put livable space into attics. Um, and, you know, in order to legalize those spaces, these types of regulations came into play. Basically, it allows for you to reach that maximum height and then take whatever space you've already included in your roof structure and allow it to potentially be occupiable. That could be when you first develop the property or think 45 years from now when someone um, wants to expand but obviously can't add a story, they're able to then utilize that existing space without actually changing the bulk and mass of the building too. And I think that's really important that you get um, somewhat of a bonus. In some cities, they'll uh, call it a mezzanine level as well. This just places it at the top, but you could have, think, you know, um, like a split level building where you have a landing in between. Sometimes there's additional livable area. Typically, that wouldn't count as a story because it's a small portion. This gives that same ability for those upper levels. And then also, um, 
tends to result in more um, interesting roof structures rather than just a flat roof to maximize square footage. Okay, thank you. Um, a number of my comments have to do either with things like misnumbered paragraphs or typos. Do I need to state those here or should I just send those to you after the meeting? If you can send them after, we'll resolve it between Planning Commission and City Council. Okay, um, good. And the motion could include with any typographical or numbering errors that are currently present in the code. Okay, okay, great. Um, there's a paragraph on page 17 uh, regarding building placement, which reads frontage coverage. Along Johnson Drive, <clears throat> a minimum of 60% of the primary building frontage shall be between the minimum and maximum setback lines. Why, why should any portion of the frontage not be between the minimum and maximum setback lines? So what could happen is someone could push it back or push it all the way forward to the minimum or push it all the way back to the maximum and this allows for variation of that frontage. So you don't get a straight line? Um, so you get a straight line. So you don't get a straight well, so line. So it'll it, it basically, you know, what typically ends up happening is people build to the minimum yeah. required setback, and this requires some um, push and pull of that frontage. Okay, all right. Um, page thirty-one regarding uh, paragraph three: massing and articulation. Duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes shall be massed as large houses composed principally of two to three story volumes. So I'm not sure what principally means here. Um, why would we not say definitively they will be composed of two to three story volumes? You're, you're leaving an option here for something else. The, the third option being one story. So, you know, um, in a lot of cases they'll have a one story, um, you know, kind of enclosed porch area in the front. Um, in a lot of cases, they tend to look like uh, afterthoughts and add-ons okay. um, because they look tacked on. So this kind of pushes the bulk to that two and three story. Do we need to define principally then? Principally is 50%, 60%? I would say principally would be more than 50%. Okay, if, if so, and if that's the intent, we sh that should be clear, that should be clarified. Principally is one of those waffly words. We can definitely clarify that if you want to okay. include it in your condition. Um, page 35, um, regarding building length, uh, at one point it stated that the building length, the limit on building length or width is 380 feet. I'm just curious where that number came from. Is that because the expected maximum block length is 400 feet? That's correct. Okay, okay. Um, at one point on, in page 41, there's a reference to architectural guidelines. I think guidelines should be changed to standards. Uh, maybe that's part of, maybe that's part of a, something I should get with you offline. This goes back to Commissioner Farley's earlier comment about, um, and, and Ramey and Associates chimed in about the difference between the objective standard and the guidelines. This is where the architectural integrity and kind of the components come in. We, it's not objective, so we can't call it a standard. We're calling it a guideline. Okay. 
Um, <clears throat> toward the end of the document, page 63, regarding light trespass, it states, all luminaries shall meet the most recently adopted criteria of the Illuminating Engineering Society of North America for cutoff or full cutoff luminaries. Um, uh, just one typo here. Well, I think what you mean is luminaire, and, which is different from a luminary. So change it to luminaire. But more concerning to me, or more interesting to me, is so I mentioned my excitement about um, earlier this evening about adhering to the international dark sky standards. I, I would really highly suggest instead of the uh, Illuminating Engineering Society of North America standards, I think this should read. All outdoor lighting fixtures shall comply with the International Dark Sky Association's Fixture Seal of Approval Program guidelines, um, which um, can be argued are, are better guidelines, and that would be consistent with what we're trying to do in our project resolution statements now to go with the International Dark Sky uh, guidelines. That's something we can definitely look at. The the dark sky guidelines are more stringent. You know, fully cut off. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> fully cut off. If this is a light fixture, you know, fully cut off is going to um, stop the light trespass from going up. The the dark sky requirements are are definitely stronger, um, and we can look at the differences and see if that's something that um, okay. we can incorporate here. Okay, I'd, I'd be thrilled to go with the uh, more stringent requirements. Um. The rest, I believe, I will get to you later on, just typo and mislabeling changes. Thank you. Thank you. Other comments? I want to come back to what uh, Christy Weir had mentioned, that um, the default was three inches on the window setbacks or insets, and this document uh, apparently reduced that to two inches, and it does make a difference visually. Was there a reason for that, or could we consider going back to the three inches? Alessandra and Simran can yes. go ahead. We, we actually, that was one of the revisions that we addressed um, in this latest adoption draft that was changed from the public draft as we increased it three inches consistent with that public comment that we received. So it is back to three inches now. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Commissioner Zucker. Uh, just wanted to circle real quick back to the um, the, the piece around freeway, you know, buffers. I, I know, um, you know, Commissioner Abbey was, was raising, a, could we get something in tonight? And, you know, staff was saying it would be hard to identify a particular um, distance and feet. You know, I, I just wanted to add that, that um, you know, I think 500 feet is a pretty kind of standard thing that's been identified by public health officials and, um, you know, environmental scientists as like a, buffer you might want and so um you know I, I think it's 10 30 at night i don't know if i have the energy to like fight for it right now and sorry to the future children who maybe get asthma and lung cancer as a result but you know uh i, I would love you know at, yeah, at some point uh, you know as we move forward with general plan or wherever you know um to yeah maybe we can check in with apcd or or you know uh california resources board or something you know Around what they might recommend uh, to try to try to get you know those those buffers somewhere into our into our code in the future. I mean, I do think it's a it's a really important issue, and as we're approving more housing density right right adjacent to the freeway, I, you know, I want to make sure we just don't lose that 
thread of conversation. Well, this, this process, this is a recommendation that will go to council. And so in that, we could say tonight we advise council, we were asking staff to come back to council with some consideration in that regard for, the, for them to potentially amend what we approved tonight to include that. Does that sound reasonable? So, uh, Chair, thank you, Chair Comden and Commissioner Zucker. Are you indicating that we study that and include that as a policy kind of across our whole f kind of freeway system? That would be beyond the scope of just these overlays, which we're happy to do and are doing with the general plan. If your intention is that we want to make sure staff is looking at that and, and setting some criteria or policy around that, that would be farther sweeping than just this one site. Well, could we say that we look at these sites, specifically Johnson, um, so that it is in the scope, in the same envelope with this particular series of motions, but then hopefully it, that it become enacted in a broader sense at a later date? We could. I, I think it would be challenging to do it with this this scope right now, um, in terms of looking at what studying what that safe distance or buffer would look like and how that would impact some of these rezone sites. Um, a general premise of this is we have calculated a certain density that these are going to be built based off these standards. If we start adjusting those standards, that may affect the housing element densities that were. Um, anticipated and so I just want to be cautious because we're going to push and pull somewhere that we're not affecting that. Um, we can absolutely look at it. I um, just don't want to promise we can can do it with this effort but definitely with a larger effort we can do it. Right. I, I, the, I say that because this is the largest series of parcels adjacent to a freeway that seem to be on the horizon. And it's an opportune time to do that. I understand what you're saying, and we'll leave that decision to council, but at least they can be given some additional information for consideration on these particular parcels. And we will discuss this also with the property owners, knowing that particularly that property owner had submitted a letter and has interest around protecting some of their, their density and what they're intending to build. Just want to make sure we have those conversations. Understood. Yeah, it does, does seem like the, the, the bigger conversation that needs to happen is, is citywide and the general plan and, you know, um, but, but I think the, the value maybe in having some of the conversation now around this is, you know, as, as Chair Comden mentioned, you know, this is a pretty significant rezone right adjacent to the freeway. And I think, you know, as, as you're saying that, uh, I mean, there's, there's a sensitivity to making sure we hit our arena numbers. And I, what I'm guessing would need to happen if there was a buffer zone from the freeway is actually to increase the density in some of the other sites that are a little farther from the freeway in order to accommodate that. And so what I guess I would be worried about is if we were to say, you know, do some sort of buffer zone later, does that then, you know, because, because we passed this now, does that mean we wouldn't be in compliance with our reading numbers to pass a buffer zone later, right? Or it just may mean consideration of how the front doors and operable windows are situated and things like that. There's ways to where the, where the parking is without you know, just setback oriented. 
Absolutely, and um, I can we can go from here and look closer at their pre-application and have discussions with them. I believe they are already providing a pretty healthy buffer, and so this may be already something they've programmed in, but we can definitely look at that and make sure. And yeah. I, I very much share the commission's concern here. Okay, very good. All right, um, Commissioner Abbey. Um, a comment was made, I think it was Christy Weir, um, regarding the Johnson site, Johnson Drive, housing element sites. So if we prove this tonight, do we in fact lock in these parcels as is and then there will be no future flexibility when the state Caltrans gets around in 10, 15 years to the letter that the city council set out within the last month or two to, to fix this uh, terrible existing interchange that's only going to be exacerbated by additional housing along the corridor is, um, so my question is, if we approve this tonight and if city council subsequently approves our recommendation, are we locking those in? You're locking in the allowable densities and the development standards, but you're not lo locking in any um, requests to Caltrans, right? So they're two separate issues. Obviously, if um, you know Caltrans is on their own um, their own schedule to do improvements to their interchanges, and um, the rezoning wouldn't impact that. Um, it would. It would seem that if you were going to try to fix, and I'm not a traffic engineer, so I won't pretend to be one, uh, but if you were trying to fix that on-ramp, on off-ramp situation, southbound, northbound, Johnson Drive interchange, you would seem, need, seem to need some flexibility in being able to uh, redesign the roadway to accommodate that change, but wouldn't we in fact be locking something in that could, Caltrans could not fix later? If, if a Commissioner uh, Abby, if you are talking about the acquisition of private property to make changes to an interchange, that's, that's a larger conversation. Regardless of what that site is zoned, that's a in, imminent domain type of situation where Caltrans is taking property to do a street improvement or interchange improvement. Regardless of what that site is zoned, that's a whole separate process to do something of that nature. But in that process, by granting M MU4, aren't you in fact adding value to the property, making it that much more expensive to, if need be, proceed in an eminent domain procedure to actually purchase that 10 years from now when that might be the the time frame when Caltrans can get around to it? Potentially. It's, there's potential that the property values could change based on the rezoning. Um, that's not something that we take into consideration when considering a rezoning. That being said, for these particular properties in the Johnson Corridor, they're actually reducing their allowable height by two stories. Um, so the, the development potential is actually being reduced in terms of building volume overall on the sites. Um, I just wanted to point that out in terms of what that could potentially do. So it's, it's tough to say how it'll impact yeah. the, the property values directly, um, but should they, yes, that would come into play with eminent domain. Yeah, Rachel, that's a good point because currently there is zoned commercial and that could allow six-story, whereas this is saying four-story. So 
perhaps the reverse of what I was suggesting it might be the case. But it just feels like we're locking something in. But thank you for that explanation. All right, other comments, commissioners? Seeing none, would someone like to make a motion, please? Commissioner Abbey. Um, this was quite a large package to digest. Um, it's 1020, roughly, at night. And um, I've got a number of concerns that I've asked initial questions, but I don't see that in our motion we're going to resolve all my questions and concerns in one sitting. Um, is there a timeline? Is city council expecting an answer on this? Is this something we could hold over to another meeting and get additional information and ask for staff to look into certain issues and bring them back so that within a time certain, say 30 days or the you know fourth week of June, uh, give staff enough time to respond so that we can make an intelligent decision tonight? Um, Commissioner Appy, are there any specific situation or things that you're looking for um, resolution to? Maybe that would help us know if what that would look like and or if um, it would be something that both staff and the commission would be comfortable forwarding on as a recommendation for us to resolve as we go to city council. Yeah, we have one, two, three, four, five, five different residential density overlays. Um, I might not, I might be in the minority. I have not been able to look in the last two weeks at every last aspect of every page of every item. Um, it was disconcerting to find out that on the adjacency step backs that for no alleyway, uh, low moderate density residence only has a 15 foot setback. And regardless of height, third, four, five, or six story mixed use, that there's only, with no alley, there's only a 20 foot setback. I didn't even ask what's the setback with an alley, which I perhaps, I guess I'll ask that question at this point. Alessandra Simran, do you know what the setback is with an alley? Is that 25 feet? If you include the alley. A typical alley standard is 20 feet. Okay, well, no alley. Mm -hmm. So for the three-story overlay, for instance, um, if there's an alley, there's a five but minimum setback for a one to one to two story buildings and a 10 foot minimum for three story buildings. But then that doesn't include the actual alleyway as well. And I do want to point out that then there's a setback on that other property as well. So it's not distance from building to building, it's distance from building to property line and then from property line to that other building, they have their own setback based on their own zone district. Right, so it's um, but uh, okay, no alley. I don't know that my question was answered. No alley, 15 feet for LM, 20 feet for three, four, five, and six. So with an alley, what is the setback from the back property line? So with an alley in the MU3, it's five feet minimum to any one or two story buildings and a 10 foot minimum to three story buildings. 
And just a reminder, the standard alley width is 20 feet, so that is why it's a reduced setback because there is the alley that also separates and provides additional buffer. Okay, so for all of these LM through MU6, we're, if we said with an alley, we're anticipating a 20-foot wide alley. Okay, so to the 20-foot wide alley at three-story, what's in addition? 10 feet. So, so the building would, in effect, with an alley and 10-foot, be at 30 feet from the property line. That's correct. Okay, and that 10 feet, is that true for four, five, and six? Give me just a moment. I believe so. I'm just double checking. So, um, give me just a moment here. Um, so similarly in the MU5, it's um, with an alley, five foot minimum to any one or two story buildings and 10 foot minimum to three to six story buildings. Without an alley, it's 15 foot minimum, 20 feet minimum abutting single family residential properties. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting lost in the detail. All right, I guess I'm making my point. There's a lot of detail that needs to be worked out and I just don't know if I'm comfortable with those setbacks given uh, how tall the building. So we could have on one side of the, the fence a one-story building, and let's, let's say just for argument's sake, it's 15-foot setback from the fence line. A lot of uh, properties have more than that, but let's just say that. Okay, conceivably, and we're not being asked to do this tonight, but it, by approving these overlays, and they'll be just in the future taken off the shelf because Planning Commission and can, supposedly city council will approve these as re if recommended. So then they'll be taken off the shelf and they'll say, oh, that would be good here. This would be good here. This would be good here. Obviously, that would require city council approval in the future. But if, if a little, I guess what I'm recommending is a little more time on the front end spent making sure that these, all these different various aspects are appropriate could save us a lot of headache down the line. I would sure hate to rush into uh, rushing this through tonight. And, and that's just on one standard. I haven't even had time to look at all of the various standards for all the buildings. This is a rhetorical question. I'm wondering if my fellow uh, planning commissioners have looked at everything in the packet as well. It's been two weeks and this is six, I'm sorry, one, two, three, five, and that's just on the overlays themselves and then not how, how do you apply that to Telegraph Road? We have a few neighbors concerned about that. If we approve it tonight, we're, lo we're conceivably locking that in. Uh, if we do that on Johnson Corridor, we're conceivably locking that in. I, it's beyond my comfort level tonight. I'd, I'd like to, I wonder if other planning commissioners have additional questions beyond what, what I've asked. Those, uh, and I won't, go into, but yeah, the freeway adjacency is a big issue uh, and we need to have that resolved on the front end and I would not feel comfortable recommending something to planning commission, to city council that we haven't vetted ourselves in advance. All right, that's it for now, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Abbey. Commissioner Roccardi. I don't have any further questions, but I'm prepared to make a motion. Okay, please do. I would like to move that 
we approve the recommendation of staff uh, with the additional statement that we'll correct any typographical errors or formatting discrepancies in the document. All right. Very good. Do we have a second? Can I offer a, a friendly amendment if uh, Commissioner Cardi will take it that um, staff include in the analysis for, for city council whether it's possible to meet arena numbers uh, with a 500 foot setback of dwelling units from the freeway? Does the motion maker accept that? And the amendment's acceptable to me, yes. Do we have a second? Second. Okay, very good. Further discussion? Do any commissioners have the same concerns as uh, Commissioner Abbey? All right. We have a motion and a second on the floor. Let's take a vote. That motion carries. All right. Very good. Thank you for your considerations and all the time spent. It's voluminous documentation. Thank you to staff for preparing this. It's important that these overlays are executed because there's things that need to be done. And to the community, if you have concerns, I, I very much want you to interact with staff uh, because this is going to go to council, our recommendation, but that doesn't mean that they can't, upon hearing more information or feedback, um, make amendments um, to rectify whatever concerns the public has. All right. Now, kind of forgotten where we are. I, uh, yeah, I, I think we've gone to uh, staff communications at this point. Thank you, Chair Comden, Commissioners. No staff communications this evening. All right, Commissioners, any communications amongst ourselves? Well, thank you for hanging in there for a long night. And, uh, we know when our next meeting will be. Do we know that date yet? Uh, the next regular scheduled meeting in June. Right. I'm sorry, I don't have that date off the top of my head. Yeah. Sounds right. All right, with that, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>